This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Hey, that's Messed Up listeners. Before we get into the episode, obviously, we do need to talk about June 24th, 2022. Um, The Supreme Court decided to overturn Roe v. Wade, um, and it's fucking horrible. Yeah, this decision has, you know, eliminated the opportunity for women to have safe and legal abortions. I don't believe abortions will stop. They will just not be safe and legal in many places. And we believe that everyone should have this freedom of choice. If you've ever listened to this podcast, you know that we're extremely pro-choice and uh, ending a pregnancy is a person's personal choice between them and their doctor. This decision is going to have such horrific consequences for individual health and safety, and it could also have harsh repercussions for other decisions in the future. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. So if you guys want to learn more, please check out choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. And if you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. We actually have many posted and we will actually, we're going to start a, a highlight in our Instagram stories where you can find tons of abortion funds that we're going to be linking to. Yeah, speak up, take care, spread the word, take care of yourselves and, you know. Have empathy for others. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! It's That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Lisa Traeger. And I am Kara Clank. And you guys, I mean, hopefully, you know, we're in the 80s in terms of numbers of this podcast. And we do an episode of SVU. We do a true crime it's based on. We do a celebrity, you know. And then before that, we sort of chit-chat a little bit and just tell you what's going on with us. Yeah, but maybe someone just is obsessed with limitations and this is their first one Yeah, I ever. need to let you we know. We really need to impress them. <laughs> we do have They're to impress like, them. They're like, I wish there was a recap going. of an episode of television from 23 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, listen, also, I was talking to some people when we were in San Francisco, and they're like, yeah, but so many people watch SVU, and I go, yeah, but a lot of them, like, love the police and hate our opinions, so yeah. a lot of them, I think, join in and go, ew. Yeah, you and can tell. They, yeah. <laughs> and then they go write a thing. I actually have not checked any of our reviews in probably, I'd want to say, eight months. Oh, I haven't looked in a long time, but... That's pretty good for you. I yeah. usually am only like once every few months. You you, you used to really get in there. To, I used to check them out every few weeks, but now I don't You're anymore. being generous to yourself, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I really haven't looked in... I haven't looked in at least a month. At least. Maybe two. Yeah. So if you're writing us a review and you're here to see if I'm going to respond to it, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, a bad one. If it's a good one, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Oh my God. I know this is going to be so far in the future and I'm sorry about the weird timeness, but this was also from last episode. This is nuts, but they are doing a Drag Race um, All-Stars episode where they have to do their own TRL segment. I know. I'm excited. It's it. You've already seen it. We'll talk about it next time. But I cannot fucking wait to watch it. <laughs> right up your alley. As we just talked last episode about how Lisa b- brutalized her parents' home in order to get to a TRL video premiere. TRL. I just like my age coincided with the best era of pop music that's ever existed, and it just like has a hold on me that will never go away. And that's that. so. So did you know that my career at MTV started when I started working on a show called The Seven that was existed for nine months in 2010? And it was um, it was them kind of trying to bring TRL back. Not as much music video stuff and no in-studio audience, but it was in the TRL studio. So I was in the TRL studio like every day for nine months. I was like the social media person. And um, yeah, it was Did cool. you look out the window? Yeah, all the time. Oh, and there was one cool moment where we did... Wait, this was a separate thing. When I worked at MTV News later, we had a concert where Lady Gaga was announcing... It was a premiere of one of her videos. So they did it TRL style. They're like, we're going to premiere her video. And I I honestly cannot tell you which video it was, but they had to shut down Times Square. The lambs are going to come for you. the, The monsters. Oh, I thought, I don't know why I heard Mariah Mariah Carey's are the lambs. (laughs) No, I heard Mariah Carey this whole time. That's what I was envisioning. Oh, no, Lady Gaga. Did I say Mariah Carey? No, I just totally heard something different. Oh, okay. okay. What is it, the Mandela effect? Like, I just heard something different (laughs) and attached to it. Berenstain Bears. Yeah, I, yeah, it was Lady Gaga. And so I had the TRL experience where it was like full audience of people dressed as in Gaga, like outfits, Full Times Square shutdown, Lady Gaga, Sway, the whole the whole deal. I think I've told you this story. I told you no. Sway told me he was nervous. No. So, so Sway goes, I'm in the elevator with Sway and I'm like, how you doing? And he goes, I'm nervous, like Lady Gaga. And I go, Sway, you're Sway. Lady Gaga's <laughs> probably been watching you since she was 16 years old. Like, do not worry about it. And he was like, yeah, I guess I didn't think about it that way. And then afterwards, he told me, he goes, that really helped me. Thank you for saying that to me. Oh my God, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I just was like, Sway, you've been around, like you've been in my life, like I just feel like tangentially through MTV and everything, like forever, like Lady Gaga's gooped to be meeting you. Like, why are you <laughs> like so nervous, you know? Because it was like a huge thing. It was a very TRL throwback. No, but that, Aparna has done something like that for me. Aparna Nancherla, she's a very successful 
person in all Very funny girl friend. Yeah. She is um, Bo, uh, the, the teen horse in BoJack Horseman. She's also herself <laughs> in lots of things, but I love her as the little horse. Um, <laughs> that I, I don't know why I can't remember her name. So I was doing, the first year of Clusterfest, I was doing that, but I didn't realize how big of a deal it was going to be. Like, I just didn't realize. So I was at my friend Josie's house, having some cocktails, smoking some weed, and I was hosting a six o'clock show or something. I was like, okay, whatever. We get stuck in terrible traffic. Um, The people are calling me. They're like, where are you? They're like, you know you're hosting this. And I was like, I'm just, I'm going to have to be there as on time as I can. The traffic wasn't moving. I had to get out and I had to run. I was like sprinting through the streets to get to this venue. Oh my God, I hate this. I'm like sweating. It's like minute by minute, it's counting. I'm like trying to run to this venue. I show up, it's it's the arena. It seats 10,000. There's like six to 8,000 people in there. I'm like dripping sweat running. I make it right on time. And Aparna just said, pretend like it's the seller. And and then I walked on stage and it was like Aparna just like um did every, like she yeah. just said the right thing at the right moment. Yeah. And I was able to host and like relax. And I think about Aparna a lot when I'm like about to be stressed. I think I'd like to think that Sway thinks about me a lot. Oh, I a hundred percent. I mean, that's what led me to think of the story. You truly changed. <laughs> You were responsible for sw- not res- for his performance. He could have been like nervous and weird and not performed at the level. Sometimes you just need a good pep. T- yeah, it's like um, I had a good Julia gave me a good talking to. Remember after my friend was being not nice, I told yeah. you this. Yeah, yes, I got like <laughs> the best pep talk of my life, and I was like, "You're right." I don't know. It just feels nice. Yeah. Love a good Whatever. pep talk. Listen, Love a is good that what we're talk. doing? Yeah, pep talk times. Like, remember the <laughs> Titans. Like, live it out in little moments throughout your day. Um, yeah. Okay, this is the bad date. So, it's not even oh that my interesting God. Wait anymore. A Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You cannot just launch into it like this. Okay, everybody. We, Lisa teased a bad date, like, maybe two months ago on the podcast that she had a bad date and then was like, I'll tell you guys next week and then never did. And people have written us messages saying, I know, where's it just the bad date? Matter. Like, it was just like, in that moment, it was like, oh my God, this just happened. And then now it's like, I could care less. Like, it was just, you know, yeah. it's like, you yeah. forget. Now it's, yeah. But everybody has been asking us at live shows. So now finally we're going to hear about it and I'm excited. Yeah, it was just like a Tinder moment. I was looking for, I would say, a fun hookup. And this person was meeting me in the hotel lobby bar. And when I met him, like, I just need to be complimented or what am I doing here? So I didn't get a compliment, didn't love it, but I could, you know, move past that. And then I had to buy my own drink. So I was like, this is kind of a nightmare. And then... I, I got tipsy and I was like talking myself into liking this person that I was not that into. And then I was talking, then this was just a funny moment, but we're I was talking about someone and I was like, oh, but they're millionaires. And he goes, how do you know I'm not a millionaire? And I was like, you truly took the bus here and you have not bought me a drink. I'm like, you're not a millionaire. And <laughs> But I kept just like seeing passive. So then we go outside to smoke weed and 
Oh, after 20 minutes too, I had to be like, you know, you have not asked me one question. And he goes, no, I have. I go, no, you typed that earlier. I'm like, you have not asked me one question in 20 minutes. I'm just letting that. I just need you to know that. But weren't th- things were going okay, right? At that point then? Yeah, or no? I like, talked myself into, yeah, we were like chatting, doing okay. stuff. But he was like annoying for sure. Like I, like after what happened at the end, like you put all the pieces together memento style. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like <laughs> I would say I like this movie. He's like, that's a dumb movie because of this and that and that. And it was just like, Okay, yeah, I still, like, what do you talk, don't talk yeah. about me. I'm like, truly, uh, I don't know. Um, so we're outside and he goes, listen, I got to be honest. I'm really not into this anymore. And I went, what? Are you kidding? He goes, no, I'm not. Like, the past 10 minutes, I'm just, like, kind of done. And I was like, um, okay. I'm like, all right, well, have a good night. And then he went, I'm kidding. And I went, I asked you if you were kidding and you said you weren't. And he goes, I thought you were a comedian. Oh my God. And it all came running. But I was like, oh, you hate that. Because he kept being like, so you do it for money? Like, and so I, I go, what does that have to do? He goes, it's a bit. Why don't you get the bit? Like if you're a comedian, like it's, and I go, all right. And he's, and then he went into this long tirade about like, it's like being Will Smith, you, I, and like censorship started quoting Chris Rock. And it's like, I fought with Chris Rock. Like he took chips off my plate. Don't fucking quote Chris <laughs> Rock to me. Like, I don't think you know who you're fucking talking to, bitch. Are you out of your mind? Oh but my God. I didn't have anything to prove. I was just like, what? And he's like, uh, censorship is fucked. You have to allow all jokes or no jokes. I'm like, we're not in stage. I don't care what you think. I'm like, I don't need this dynamic in my life. I'm like, you're not like not this. allowing a joke. It's not funny. <laughs> it's not a joke. Like, <sighs> oh my god. Honestly, it's really it's a neg. He's trying. He was trying to neg you to throw you off. Oh yeah. So then he went. Did I just fuck this up? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and then I went inside. And then it was like whatever. But. Um, and then I was pissed because I smoked weed and then I was too high to kind of do anything else. But so it was just so fucking annoying. And I know this type of person. And it was just like, I kept like allowing things to happen. And then at the end, it was like, of course, you're a weird little incel. I don't know. That's like yeah. mad about my life because you have a roommate. I went on a double date with Jared's friend, him and his wife, and he convinced me for like half an hour that he had never tried a taco before. And like, okay, that's kind of funny. Like after a half an hour, I was like, wait, you seriously, he's like, I live in Canada. Like we just, tacos are not as readily available. Like I just have never tried tacos before. That's like a stupid bit of like, just kidding. Aha, gotcha. That's like dumb and stupid and like a funny joke. Not like, hi, um, everything about you and this interaction's like not going great for me. JK, like it's just not <laughs> funny. Like you cannot explain to me how that's funny. Well, lying isn't a joke. And that's what I think a lot of people who think they're sarcastic or funny think because he also <laughs> was trying to convince me that he had like a Sopranos tattoo on his butt and then he didn't. And it's like, okay, but what lying is not yeah, cool. Yeah, 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 I don't yeah. get it. Like- I'm not a cynic. I don't like lies. I don't really improv in life. Like, I'm not going with your bits, okay? Have you had a taco or not? I don't care about what you're about to do. Like, I don't need this bit. I don't need it. Like, um, even with gay, like, when we're playing at Telestrations, there's one group of friends, my friend, her friends like to do little joke pictures. And I go, what is this? I want to play this game how it's supposed to be played. Like, I just, um, I don't like fakeness. I don't know. Yeah, 
I hear you. As grounded as possible is my level of living. And I don't <laughs> need to be tricked. And that you're not into this. It's like, okay. Yeah. But it's kind of when I went on that date with the girl who came to my house. And the first thing she said, she goes, that's what you decided to wear. And I was like, are we trying to fuck or what? Like, why yeah. are you not being nice to me? I just don't understand it. I don't get it. No, you got to give a call. I mean, you got... I give a compliment just to a friend I see off like after a while. Like, great to see you. You look great. You know, like I like this. I like that. I like what you're. I like your bracelet. Whatever. You know. I just don't. I just don't understand a world where you wouldn't be nice to the person you're trying to have sex with. Yeah, I just. But don't that's understand. the thing. The entire thing of the pickup artist is against that. It's like throw women off their guard, neg them, make them feel like they are lucky to have you, like this kind of shit, you know? Like where it's not about complimenting or being nice to the person you want to fuck. It's crazy. I, you're right. I don't know. I just don't fuck that it. guy. I hope he listens to the pod. No, yeah, I don't know. He's managing a nerd rapper. I don't know. I don't know what his life is, but <laughs> was so annoyed. Oh my God. Well, I'm glad everybody finally got the fucking story. I know, but it's so anticlimactic. It's so anticlimactic. No, we need the whole, all of our dick wolf babies can send that man bad energy now. It's worth it. Yeah. Um, It was just weird. It's like, I couldn't have been more of a sure thing. Like, you're meeting in my hotel bar. You know what I mean? Like, I just like, sex is an elevator ride away, you stupid dumbass. I'm just like so confused at like all the behavior that had happened. But, you know, it's the internet, it's the Wild West. It is. Oh, man. Sometimes I, I regret, I'm sad that I never really got to do Tinder. And other times I'm like, maybe it's for the best. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, I think it's fun when you're on vacation and then it's like, yeah, I don't know, a nightmare if you're where you're living. That's how I feel. (laughs) Yeah. Like in London, it's like, ooh. And then (laughs) when you're in LA, it's like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, what do you think? Should we just get started? Get into today's episode? We have an episode, an early guy this week. Oh my God, yeah. Season one. I demanded this one. I don't know why. I just, I demanded it. I remember sending an email being like, we have to do it. And I'm glad we did it. It is a goodie. It's a good one. We have a fun guest. And let's just get going. Guys, stay where you are. So here we are back in season one, episode 14, a very pre 9-11 date of February 11th, 2000 is when this episode came out. It's called Limitations. I don't even know if I said that already. Um, Limitations. And we open on a map and we hear this man talking about how there's been a bunch of robberies by the same guy with no arrest. And then Cam returns to Isaiah Whitlock Jr., legend, who I guess people know from The Wire. I don't because I've never seen The Wire. Sadly, but you know my... him. I oh my god, Veep! Like he's twenty fifth six... hour. He's been on six episodes of SVU, playing all different kinds of roles. We want him on the pod. If you know Isaiah, let us know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would be amazing, actually. We need to find an episode where he's, like, more... This is this would not be a good one for him because he's sitting there, he's under fire from this, like, nasally white man who is the, the commissioner, and this is one of those Comstat meetings where, like, the higher-up cop guys who, like, never really do any actual work with people or victims just scream at the detectives and humiliate them in front of their peers <laughs> while they wear their fanciest uniforms. It's like a sorority um, hazing. It's truly, like, yeah, it's like, get on your fanciest outfit and we're gonna scream at you in front of everyone. <laughs> that is... 
is what it is. Um, so I guess in a way, like it is a good thing to have because it keeps police accountable and like calls out mistakes. But it always feels like on SVU, they're just like, find the rapist by tomorrow at noon or you're all fired. And it's like, okay, like it's not that easy. And um, the SVU guys are always like, we're actually trying quite hard. Um, but anyway, Isaiah Whitlock is going, yeah, I'm sorry we made a mistake because they didn't connect all these robberies to each other until it was like, too late or something. And then at the end, the commissioner's like, you're being reassigned. It's like brutal. It feels like it's at the end of the sorority thing and they're like, you're cut. Like, you're not joining. <laughs> like, So he kind of just gets up, tail between his legs, leaves. You see Benson and Stabler sitting in the gallery with Daddy Cragen and Benson has a look on her face like, Goo. and um, Craig's is up next and they he says good morning. So apparently it's morning in this room, but the NYPD cannot afford light bulbs or windows. The room is dark. <laughs> there is a seance happening in there. And the commissioner is like, good morning, C Captain Craig. And heard there's a guy jacking off on the Third Avenue bus. And Craig's like, never fear. Benson and Stabler got that guy yesterday. So now he throws up a random slide of a map of Manhattan with three dots at various addresses. And he's like... He's trying to like pull one over on Craig and kind of, he's trying to make him look bad. And he's like, recognize this map? And he's like, no, I do not. And he's like, three break-in reaps in less than a week. And uh, the DNA backlog just matched them last week to the same unknown assailant. And Cragen's like, I do not remember that. And the commissioner's like, well, if you had read your circular, you would know. And so I guess the circular is like a newsletter that the cops send out and expect everyone to read right away. Um, I imagine a lot of spelling errors and weird commas. <laughs> I feel like I and could write on art. that newsletter. Yeah. yeah, there's like an eagle clip art at the top of it, like for I sure. I miss the word art options from Microsoft Word. I wish it had, I wish Google oh. Slides had that fun, those fun words. I like the rainbows and the thing, like the, yeah. the turquoise it that looked like it was popping forward. Like I miss those. Yeah, you have to go find your own PNG files now. It's annoying. Um, but so the guy goes, if you had read your circular, which I imagine, yeah, is like the Trader Joe's fearless flyer or whatever it's called, then you would know that this is newly identified rape pattern for 1995. And Cragen's like, well, I was in homicide in 1995. And he's like, this is still your case, homeboy. Like, you better figure it out. And if you don't make any headway on these cases soon, we will be time barred from prosecuting them due to the five-year statute of limitations on rape in New York. So I wanted to just really briefly touch on this because the statute statute of limitations in New York was five years for rape. And it has now, as of 2019, alleged sex pest and then Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, passed a law expanding the statute of limitations. What, what I found the photo of, of the signing of this law, Julianne Moore was there, Mira Sorvino, Amber Tamblin, and season one and two's Michelle Hurd, Jeffries was sitting right right by the governor signing this. And she's a big part of this episode. So I thought that was interesting. Um, so under this new law, the statute of limitations for reporting second-degree rape increases to 20 years and third-degree rape increases to 10 years. Previously, both were five years. And then... Um, there is, I believe, no statute of limitations for rape one. So I was just curious about the degrees and I looked that up too. So rape in the third degree is just general non-consensual sex. In the second degree, it is when it happens with someone who is less than 15 or incapable of consenting due to like a mental disability or incapacity. And then rape in the first degree is when it happens with force, like um, there's a weapon involved. Like, so that's why a lot of them are first degree in 
SVU because someone's usually at knife point or, or gun point or something like that. With, so there's an implied threat of violence or a real threat of violence, or the victim is less than 13 years old. And then it says, or less than 11 years old if the alleged rapist is a minor. So that's rape one. That's the first degree. Um, and so, yeah, uh, this new law is great because it, it extends it for most cases and the statute of limitations for incest in the first degree extends to 20 years and it's great. But in this episode, the statute is five years. So it's this is one of those countdown running against the clock episodes that we love slash hate. I know, but I just wish I could be there in the meeting when they all decided to make a limit. Like, that's what is confusing to me. Like, I just don't even understand how you would, why and how you would do this. Well, they talk about it in this episode. They talk about it later and they say it's like so that, you know, American citizens don't walk around for inordinate amount of time worried that the government can bring charges against them whenever they want. I think it's like to prevent government. They, I think they, it's implied that it's like to prevent abuse of the system or something. But this was also before a lot of DNA and, and medical, like scientific breakthroughs had happened. So people thought of rape a lot as a he said, she said. And I'm sure the reason that there's a statute of limitations is because it's like, well, you can't just let a woman ruin your life after 10 years. Like, you know, it's bullshit. Yeah. It's complete bullshit. But yeah, that that is what they try to address it in this episode like it's a constitutional thing. But anyway, um, in this episode, we're dealing with five years. The, the commissioner asks Craig if he's spoken to any of these victims. And he's like, no, I literally, you just told me about the pattern. <laughs> and he says, well, today's your lucky day because one of them is here. And then the back doors of the Comstat meeting open and this absolute boss bitch with a bump it walks in like she owns the place, struts to the front, turns around like she's about to own the whole debate team. And her name is Victoria Kraft, and she testifies about her rape in 1995 when a man broke into her apartment, stripped, got into bed with her, raped her, maced her, and then left. And she notified the, the police. The is like such overkill. It's like you already did the rape. What are you macing I know. someone for? I think it's, psycho. yeah, maybe so they can't go after. I don't know. I, know. I don't know. I just... So horrible. Um, And then she notified the police there's been no arrest and she is confused on the same as Lisa about why and me about why there even is a stat five-year statute of limitation on rape and she jokes it's harder to dodge a parking ticket and then she asks SVU to revisit the case before the statute expires and Cragen thanks Ms. Kraft and promises to assign her case the highest priority and then we're at the credits baby so now top of act one we're back in the squad and Jeffries is like, hey, how was Comstat? As if Comstat's ever good. And they're all like, uh, it was terrible. And Munch says, yeah, Comstat's like having the IRS audit you every three weeks. Like, I guess your work. Um, but Cragen, you know, the consummate captain is like, yeah, it's a pain in the ass, but it does help weed out the slackers who aren't pulling their weight. Like, it's not that bad for guys like me who are like the best captain in the world. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's why Daddy Cragen's not like the other captains. And uh, he hands Jeffries the file on another victim named Jennifer Neal and tells Benson and Stabler to take the other two victims. Um, so uh, they don't have an ID on the DNA. So they're just going to call him John Doe 121. And his MO is, as we've as we've heard from Vicky, breaking in, getting into bed with the woman when they wake up, his face is covered with a stocking, attacks them, maces them, gets dressed and leaves. So they're wondering, why did he stop at three? And Cragen's like, well, he may have started wearing a condom, very possibly. And um, Munch is like, huh, a thoughtful rapist. And it's like, 
classic munch. So then the profile of this guy is he's a white male, 20s at this point, maybe in his 30s, between 5'10 and 6'1, 160 pounds, but that could have changed. It's been five years. Long black or brown hair, could be a buzz cut by now. They don't have a lot to go on. You just described like half the men in New York. Uh, Jeffries points out the statute and Cragen's like, yeah, that's the point, babe. Like, that's what we're talking about. That's why we're hustling on this. <laughs> and like, she's like, but there's a statute. So I think this is also season one where they're still hammering a lot of the technical at you because it hasn't become secondhand language to the viewers the way it has now, where you're like, oh, this is first degree, second degree this, so we're going to do that. So they're really like, I don't know, it feels like they're hammering in a lot of the like, let's go over this guy's MO again. Let's go, even though we just heard it five seconds ago in the open, you know, like they're just doing a lot of hammering. So anyway, Cragen is going to try to play some legal tricks and see if the DA can file an arrest warrant based on this guy's DNA, which is like, sort of a sneaky way to get an extension so that they have more time. So they would seek a warrant for him. And instead of using his name in the warrant or address or something like that, they would use his DNA because that is individual to every single person. So Jeffrey says, oh, they're trying that in Wisconsin. So I I do bet bet this was based on a real thing. I did not look it up. I'm sorry. Um, Cragen writes that the amount of time they have in each case, he puts up a photo of every woman and over their faces, he puts how much time they have. And it's four days, three days, one day, which is completely nuts. Like this is definitely a TV show to think that cops are going to solve a cold case in a day or even four days. But you know, SVU is going to try. So now we're in the apartment of Lois Crean. She is like this mousy little brunette who seems very like cagey and shy. And she is played by, um, I believe it's pronounced Shauna, S-E-A-N-A. Shauna Kofoed. Wow, I don't know. I'm sorry, Shauna. I'm butchering your name in all ways. And she still actually works a lot and was a recurring on Claws, but I cannot remember her character at all. But... Claws is on. That was like my favorite thing in that video. <laughs> if you missed, if you missed the video of me getting onto the plane, I was trying to show how I always walk past Lisa in first class. And the minute this woman got out of the way so I could see Lisa with my camera, Lisa goes, Claws is on. It was great. <laughs> um, so I think I watched Insecure on that flight. And it I is watched so the Sopranos. Good. Yeah. I love Insecure. It just it is good. It's just, you don't, um, you're not able to get the full depth of how good a show is when you have to wait week after week. Like the binge is the way to really appreciate it. And I watched yeah. like four in a row and it's like, oh yes, or two in a row or whatever. Um, yeah. And that's what I'm going to do with Hacks. Like I can't wait. I know. I just need to, to sit watch down and watch all, all of Hacks. Yeah, but I'm that's the, what I'm, I'm halfway through the first episode and I'm like, I need to just sit when I have time. It's going to be an incredible day. I mean, if my kids could stop getting diseases for one second, that would be great. I would love to watch Hacks. <laughs> so this woman, Lois, is talking to Benson and Stabler and she looks terrified. Like her like, like body language is terror 101. And she's asking, they're asking her like, how did the guy leave? It doesn't really say in your report how he left. And she's like, great question. I don't remember. And then they show her a floor plan and she's like, oh yeah, in my old apartment, you had to go through the bathroom to get to the bedroom. I'm like, that's so New York. <laughs> like just go past a toilet to get into bed. And she thinks he must have just gone out the front door. And then they give her a card and they tell Lois, you did great, right? And she's like, I didn't help. Like, she's so a mess. Like, she looks like she's about to break at any moment. So we cut to the courthouse where Cragen is harassing the ADA and her name is Kathleen Eastman. And she is played by Jenna Stern. She has been on not only Criminal Intent and Original, but she has been on 20 episodes of SVU because she's only plays... 
Kathleen Eastman in two episodes in season one, and then they bring her back in season 13 as trial judge Elana Barth. So she's like, you know how you always have your your girl Lois, who's Lewis slash Lois? She's the older redhead, I would say, and this is like the younger redhead judge. The chic straightened out hair. Yes. Light, light yes. red, yeah. I exactly. And um, she's like still recurring. She was just on season 23. So she's still in the SVU fam. And anyway, she's like headed down the hallway with a big ass file box and some extra files that just won't fit in. And Cragen's just like begging her to get a judge to issue a warrant for this guy based on DNA instead of name. And she's like, oh, the Wisconsin maneuver? Like everyone keeps talking about Wisconsin. Again, I refuse to look it up. Uh, we don't have precedent. And Cragen is like, be the precedent you want to see in the world. Like he is like, let's just, we could start this in New York if you want it. And she's like, dude, that's a lot of legal work. And he's like, okay, how about if this guy, this rapist is your next cab driver? Like he just fully scare tactics her. And she's like, you're right. I don't want to get raped in a cab. And so she takes the paperwork and gives him the like, fuck, I guess I'll try look. So in the next scene, Munch and Jeffries are talking to the third victim who is Jennifer Neal, played by an actress named Jenny Bacon, who I always remember exactly from this episode. She just has this very calm way of speaking. And in my mind, she's the thumbnail of this episode, whether or not she's the thumbnail for real on Hulu. Well, also these three victims are very like the three little pigs and the big bad wolf. Like they each yes. have very specific um, personalities. Yes. <laughs> yes. And like uh, the brunette is definitely like her house is made of straw. She's a mess. And then yeah. <laughs> I don't, I can't decide the other two, but they're well, very distinct. I think definitely Victoria's one is made out of bricks because she's like the fucking boss bitch who's like threatening people to take them down. And yes, like, but is that the, really the strongest? That's what I'm thinking. Oh, you're right. Like, wow. is she actually would because it's a front. She's not healed. I'm, I might be giving something away. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Who knows if this okay. bitch is healed? But Yeah, we know nothing yet. So... Jennifer Neal's telling them about her rape and saying it was the worst moment of her life, but that wasn't all. What happened after that changed my life. She says the love and support she received after her attack reaffirmed her faith in humanity. She felt suicidal and the people in her life took care of her. She realized she was part of a community. And then they tell her we're reopening the case because there were two other victims. Like we've connected them now through DNA. And she's like, oh, okay. And, and they're like, can you tell us anything? And she's like, I mean, here's what I told the other cops. This guy knew my dog's name. He knew the restaurant where I sometimes ate breakfast. But she also says, I just want this all to end. Like, I don't think she cares that her statute of limitations is coming up. She doesn't seem like... She's not pressed. Yes, exactly. So back to frantic Cragen accosting people in courthouses. He and the redhead are chasing down Judge Alan Ridenor, who has been on 13 eps of SVU, seasons one through 10. He's got the bald top hair in the big back, and then the hair in the back, and then the big bushy mustache. And he's like always kind of very sarcastic and funny. And I did see that he actually passed away in 2017. So RIP to Harvey Atkin, the man who plays Judge Alan Ridenor. Um, but in this scene, he's like, He's like hustling through the courthouse and he's like, I want my lunch, you know? Like he's like a surly judge looking for food. And they're like selling him on this idea of of issuing a warrant based on DNA. And he brings up Wisconsin again and says, yeah, but Wisconsin doesn't have New York's powerful defense bar. And he's like, you guys have had five years. Why don't you give me to the end of the day to make my decision? At least it's not a no, right? That's good. So now Benson and Stabler are back talking to Victoria Kraft, the woman we met at the Comstat meeting. And she was never impressed with her original detective. She said they were neither the best nor the brightest. She hired a private investigator and um, hands them over 
over the files. She's like, I wanted someone who answered to me. And she said, well, he discovered that the security of my building was bad, so I am suing them. And then there's this guy on a bike and the neighbor saw a kid speed away on a bike. That's a, bit, a tidbit that comes out of this file from the private investigator. So now we've instantly in hours tracked down that neighbor who five years ago saw a guy speed away on a bike. Very SVU. They're talking to him outside. He knows exactly where he was five years earlier. He goes, I was outside smoking a butt. And I really just love that because when I smoked, that's always what we called it. We would always be like, do you want to go outside and smoke a butt? Like we constantly, like my sister and I would be like, oh my God, my sister and I would be like, oh my God, I asked so many bees last night. Like we would just, the way we, we always talked about smoking butts. Um, yeah, I don't know why that was my, our vernacular. So this man and I are kindred spirits. So he saw a man on a bike speeding away from the building the night of the attack. And the guy goes, oh yeah, that bike, it's a, this kind of bike with with uh, reflectorized lime green paint. It had the, like he knows everything about this fucking bike. And they're like, okay, make, model, everything. And he's like, well, I oughta. I worked in a bike shop for over 28 years. So I like that. They happened to find a bike expert who caught a biker. And he's like, here's a weird thing. The guy was wearing a motorcycle helmet on a bike and he was wearing a jumpsuit. And they're like, maybe a uniform? And the guy goes, I don't know. It's been five years. It's like, okay, but sir... You, the bike knowledge, you know everything else. Um, so now, back in the courtroom, Cragen and the redhead are waiting with bated breath for the judge's verdict. And he says that they have a great idea there. It's a novel idea, and that it, but it is not his job to rule on novel ideas. And so he is rejecting the request for the warrant, but he is also passed the paperwork already on to an appellate judge because he said, if my decision is reversed, I want it to be done soon enough that you guys can get some good out of it. So would can you believe a, bureau, a bureaucratic position, he's actually trying to push things through a little bit quicker. Yeah, but why don't you just rule on that? Like, that's what's annoying. It's like, I'm going to rule on this, but hopefully it'll get overturned. And it's like, you have the power. But I think it's because appellate courts have like a different power. Like, I think it's like... He has to just follow the law. And I think that appellate judges maybe are able to, I mean, all of our lawyer people are going to write in and be like, Carrie, you're full of shit. I just got the impression that maybe an appellate judge could bend like laws more or like constitutions or something. So I, I have no idea, but it is a great question. Why didn't you just say yes? Um, because I know it was like an appellate judge that dropped the mask mandate. You know what I mean? Like it's, it always feel. maybe I'm just making this up. Tell us please, law people. Um, so Victoria... Hears that it's been denied and runs out of the courtroom. She's upset. Olivia goes after her and she's like, we're going to appeal. It's going to be okay. And Victoria's like, no, fuck you. It's not going to be okay. I'm pissed. You waited five years to do this half-cocked legal maneuver, she says. And then she's like, I endured everything. The rape exam, the intimate details of my life that I gave you. And I thought I was going to get some help. But today, you guys just said to me again, sorry, Vicky, you got raped and we're not going to do jack about it. And then she says, thank you for making this the second worst day of my entire life. I think you know what the first was. Woo. Harsh SVU monologues for a thousand, Alex. Okay. Top of act two. It's a new day in the workroom. Vicky's case has expired, but That's there are funny. still- That's funny. We need to do that. I hate <laughs> With- saying the precinct back in the squad room. It's the workroom. Oh my God. Yeah, they're back in the workroom. The- well, it's yes. like truly, it's sunny day. Everyone's wearing different clothes. It's the next day. And so Vicky's case has expired like- 
uh, you know, he crosses it off on the list of ones that they can still work on. But there's still two days on Lois's case and three days on Jennifer's case. So this is, yeah, like the pressure is mounting. Um, Benson points out that Victoria can still testify at the trial for one of the other rape victims under Molyneux. So I look up Molyneux, of course, and that is basically... Normally, evidence of a prior wrongdoing of crimes is not admissible, but in the Molyneux rule or the Molyneux exception, it's sometimes called, it is allowed if it's more probative than prejudicial to prove, for example, motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, common scheme or plan, knowledge, identity, absence of mistake or accident, or conduct that is inextricably interwoven with the charged acts. Okay, then what is not Molyneux? It seems like it's everything. I think it's like you can't just be like, like if there's a rape, you can't just be like, well, one time in high school, this guy pinched my butt. Like that doesn't really like, that doesn't really lead like to a pattern. This is like more of a specific pattern because the guy had the same exact MO. You can talk about like crimes that have similar MOs. So I guess this would count as Molyneux. And Munch calls Molyneux, Munch is pissed. He calls Molyneux another right-wing end run around the Constitution. And Cragen's like, what the fuck, Munch? Do you want to get this guy or what? And he's like, of course I do. I just think in the name of cracking down on crime, we throw civil liberties to the wind sometimes. And um, like, I think he's arguing this because he's like, look, back in the day, I used to be a thorn in the government's side. He probably protested Vietnam. He probably did a bunch of shit and got arrested for some civil disobedience. And he's like, I'm glad that there are laws that protect the government from just capriciously arresting me, which is is very much how conspiracy theorists work. And Jeffries It's not is about like, you, Munch. But it's also not capricious. Like, Jeffries goes, there's no capricious arrest here. There's DNA. Like, we know who this person is. Like, no one's coming in to just arrest you and saying, well, that one time you threw a rock at a cop back in, like, 69, you know, that's not what is happening here. But, you know, Munch always has to... There's, like, a writer who's like, I write for Munch and all of my conspiracy theory shit and, like, kind of, like very, very um, almost socialist shit gets through for Munch. Um, but anyway, um, not that there's anything wrong with socialism. It's just, it's very, you know, Munch's point of view. Yeah, but he might be like a libertarian vibe. Yeah, that's what that's kind of what I was trying to yeah. say. More libertarian, more fuck the government, get off my lawn. Yeah. So don't tread on me flag on his pickup truck. Absolutely, Munch. Okay, and so Cragen's like, all right, let's all get back to work. Like, as you know, we have five minutes to finish this case. Stabler wants to go visit all the old cops who worked on these cases. And Munch is like, oh yeah, great. It'll be like seeing the old SVU Alumni Association. <laughs> like, so uh, they go and they talk to a female detective who remembers the case being really frustrating. She was like, there were no leads. One of the, It was one of the reasons I transferred. And they're like, oh, because it was like frustrating. And he, she was like, no, because Vicky Kraft sued me and my partner for dereliction <laughs> of duty. And so it like, she's like, it all got handled. Like, I like, it sounds like, you know, internal affairs or whatever, or your, your reps or whatever handled the suit. Like the actual monetary part of the suit was thrown out. But I guess she left SVU over that. And so she said, you know, we we were working at 24-7. There were just no suspects. Like, but I had a clear mental picture of who this guy was. And they're like, oh, do tell. And she's like, well, listen, he gets past two locked doors at a lot of these buildings. Like, you got to get buzzed into those. And no tenants remember letting anyone in, although someone must have. So this is the kind of guy that like no one notices, probably a white guy, underemployed, filled with resentment. And then they tell her, hey, by the way, we linked this to two other rapes. And she's like, oh man, I hate to hear it. 
And so now Benson and Stabler are talking to another former detective from Jennifer Neal's case. And he works at like a trucking company now or something. He's not a cop anymore. And he remembers the guy uh, knew a lot about the victim, like what kind of car she had, where she worked, what she liked to buy when she went shopping, where she shopped. And he, we thought maybe he was like tapping her phone or reading her mail. But he's like, you know, it never gets sent, makes sense till you get them into interrogation. And Liv is like, tell me about it. And then they tell him like, oh yeah, we're talking to the other cops. Like uh, there was another victim. And he's like, oh man, like he's also kind of bummed to hear that there were other victims. And he's like, well, who got the other girl's case? Uh, and he's talking about Lois's case. And he goes... Uh, oh, Detective Dan Latimer. And the guy goes, oh, hell. Like, he goes, this guy is just one of those guys that shouldn't be a cop. And he's like, he thought most rapes were fantasies and he's retired now and he owns a cop bar. And uh, guys go out there to like talk shit and you guys should go out and see him. And then they ask this guy, Roy, like, what made you bounce from SVU? And he gives this like little monologue where he's like, yeah, you know, we had this victim. She was raped and murdered and that's the usual stuff. But like, she had marks all over her body like she'd been tortured for a week. And her first name was Jojo. And he was like, nobody sees what we see. And it was just like, you could just tell this guy was like, I've been touched by what I've seen in, on when I worked in SVU. So at the cop bar, uh, we are talking to this asshole cop. And he's like, sex crimes detectives are just garbage collectors. Do your two years and get out. And Olivia's like, okay, cool. 23 years later. And then um, this guy is played by John Doman, who is booked and blessed, baby. He is in so much shit. He was in Trial of the Chicago 7. He's in the, that uh, new show, City on a Hill, with our buddy Delaney Williams. He's in. He was in The Affair, Gotham. But he's also been on five episodes of SVU, including Lisa's least favorite episode, Scheherazade, where he plays Mike Molinax. And I... I remember, you know that episode with Brian Dennehy? Yeah. I think Mike Mullinax is like a main, he's the main guy. Like he's the guy that that Paget like thinks is her dad or whatever. But like this is, you know, he he's in a, that big episode. So I know this guy, but I don't know if I just know him from SVU because he's in a lot of them. So he remembers Lois's case, but Benson's like, well, you barely made any notes. And he goes, uh, you'll learn. Like he's, you hate this guy immediately. And it's like, yeah, do not talk down to Benson. You can tell she's already getting steamed up. And then Stabler's like, does his like, let me handle this before Benson flips out on him. And he's like, well, what did you think happened? Like, give us your insight. And Latimer's like, oh, the whole story's right there. ONS. And they're like, ONS. And he's like, one night stand. She was a bookworm. If she even caught a guy, she wouldn't know what to do with it. He thinks that she just like had sex and regretted it. And now she's making it up. And Benson is getting more and more steamed. And now we, the camera backs up and we see that this fucking psychopath is drinking a tall glass of milk at a bar that he owns. I cannot forgive this. No, it's disgusting. I actually lived a very sheltered life and I didn't know people drank milk with their dinner until I went to college in Iowa. And I was like, I need to get out of here. Like, I don't belong here. Oh, really? What did you drink with dinner usually? Water? I don't know. Water, juice, like bubbly stuff, mineral. I don't know. I don't, but definitely Ugh, not dairy. Only milk, only milk. And we like had to finish But you're it kind too. of Jewy. Like, I don't understand. Did you guys not eat meat? Like I just would never want to No, we to ate mix. meat. It was just like, it was just like a thing that my parents, parents probably told them. So they were just doing to us. Like there's no, no it's reason the milk behind council. it. It's the got milk ass. Yeah. It's the yeah, fucking. It's like the milk mustaches. Milk does a body good. All that bullshit. Like we just had to drink milk. Like, um, 
Rosie drinks milk. Now I offer it to her, but like, I'm like, if you don't want it, you don't have to have but that's it. that's a child. That's a tiny child. They're allowed no, to No, no, but milk. they say that even after like two or three, like the benefits of cow's milk is like, their bones are doing okay. Like, you know, they're getting calcium from cheese and other things. Like you don't have to like be pumping milk down their throats like the way we did when we were kids. Or not you, but me. So... It's just disgusting to see this man drinking a glass of milk, like full nighttime glass of milk. Wait, you're going to love this. So, you know, my nephew, the littlest meathead nephew went to camp. And then when they arrive, they write a letter and it gets scanned and sent to the parents, like technology, whatever. But they write the letter and all his letter said was, I forgot my protein powder. Please send it. You're not allowed to bring protein powder to my camp. (laughs) Really? You can't bring anything like extra to eat or anything like that. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, his grandma runs the camp. I don't know what to tell you. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) He's in the bunk with his cousin. (laughs) So anyway, there's absolutely no way in hell that this man at his age is handling dairy well. And I'm just like really (laughs) sickened by watching him drink a full glass of milk. And But that's also a funny add to his character because he's so terrible. Well, yeah, I was actually at a friend's house uh, a couple nights ago and they offered me a white Russian. And I was like, are you out of your fucking mind? I've never had a white Russian for that reason. But people say they're good. I don't know. I just have never felt like drinking milk when I'm out to like drink. I don't know. And I'm a big, big Lebowski fan. I just haven't had a white Russian. Um, So Stabler breaks the news to this asshole that, hey, by the way, that rapist was a serial. So she didn't make it up and it's real. And he did it to two other women that we know of. And the guy goes... So I made a mistake. Let me buy you a drink. And it's like, what? A fucking shot of 2%, you fucking psycho? Anyway, Benson storms away from the table. She hates this man, as do I. And then we are smash cut. No, I'm just kidding. We cut to the appellate hearing for the warrant. And the judge there is like, okay, I see what you're trying to do here, but why, if we can just do a DNA on this rapist, if we can just issue a warrant based on this rapist DNA, why can't we just do that on every rape and just get the DNA, get a warrant, and then we'll find the perp at our leisure? And she argues, well, this is a unique circumstance. And the judge is like, yes, but like, where would it end? Would it even stop at rapists? Would we just do this to every mugger, every turnstile jumper? I think that people like this worry about this turning into like, what is it? What's like 1912, 1812, or whatever, like a big brother situation where the government has all of our DNA on file and is like using using it to track us down for crimes we didn't commit. I don't know. Um, but Cragen stands up and is like, sir, we have two days to get this guy. And the judge is like, I feel you, bro, but we cannot circumvent the law. And the application is denied. And Lois is there. And now she's, stop inviting these women to these fucking warrant hearings. Like, just (laughs) let them know later. Like, Lois is there and she has a fucking full panic attack. She like breaks down, is crying. Like, it just feels like another, you know, door slamming in her face. And so now they're at Lois's place at the top of Act 3 and they're telling, she's telling them a little bit more about like her situation. She's opening up to them more than she did, I guess, in like the first talk they had. And she's like, you know, at the time I was 24, the biggest thing that had ever happened to me was Brandon Lee's death. The son of Bruce Lee died on the set of The Crow, much like in what happened with the Alec Baldwin thing. I think it was like a gun that was loaded with a, I actually think it was loaded with a blank, but he was shot with a blank that killed him, which I didn't even know that blanks, I thought blanks were a noise. But anyway, this I remember this happening. This happened when I was probably like, yeah, 11 or something or 10. And it was like a thing everybody like talked about. And it was, he was very beloved by people. And um, she and her best friend, she said, went to go see the crow over and over and over again. And then when she's talking about the assault, she's like, 
the actual sex part wasn't the worst. She'd even thought about what would happen if this happened to her. And it was just that afterwards, he knew she liked Brandon Lee. He wanted to talk about the crow. And she's like, I just wanted him to go. And he wanted to talk about all these things that were my things. And like, he, like, that felt like more of a violation to her that he just like knew about her. And then like, after violating her was like, let's chat. Like, and he left at, when he left, he said, you're a sweetheart, Lolly. And she says, the only person who calls me Lolly is my grandmother. And like, how would he know that? And she goes, the last detective told me to go to a shrink. Like he didn't believe me. And I'm like, yes, that's milkman. He's the worst. And the perp knew things about her. She had never talked about on the phone. So she doesn't think it was a phone tap situation. She's like, he knew like where I went rollerblading in the park. Like he knew what I was doing in the real world, not on a phone. And Olivia is like, well, could he have been on a bike? And she was like, yes. I told the other detective about a green bicycle and he said I was going to see my rapist everywhere I went at first. Like he tried to tell her that she was seeing things. And he, she said, he was always around and I just kept seeing him and I knew it was him, the man on the green bike. Okay, so this is a, this is a turn. We're, we're feel like we're getting somewhere in a five-year case right now. Now we're at a PI firm and we're talking to the PI who Vicky hired about the guy on the green bike. And he pulls the file because he's like, I don't really even remember this. And he thought maybe it was this messenger service called Green Machine Bike Messengers. And he's like, I didn't talk to anyone there because they went out of business. So now back at the workroom, <laughs> we're discussing how this guy stalks the women, follows them on his bike for months. And uh, Stabler goes, yeah, it's textbook power reassurance rapist behavior. Um, so the spying is a prelude to the rape. Like, it's like making sure that you have power over the situation. And then Jeffries has a lead. She found the owner of Green Machine, and he now owns a laundromat called Clean Machine. LOL to the writer's room. So Jeffries and Munch go to pay this guy a visit and he's at his laundromat and he confirms the jumpsuits and the bikes. And then they're like, can we look at your records? Could you look up a couple of addresses for us on your computer? He pulls out a full summer camp trunk, like my trunk that I have for camp <laughs> that is filled with old letters and playbills. And he's like, here are my files. And he's like, listen, I was a better cyclist than I was a businessman. Like I kind of forgot to pay my taxes. And then one of my guys got hurt and I didn't have the right insurance. And he gives them the trunk and he's like, yeah, take all my records. If the IRS comes after me again, I can tell them the, the cops took them. It's a perfect excuse. And so now the gang is back at the house and they are diving into these files, but it's going to take forever. It's like stacks and stacks and stacks of like very thin pieces of paper. And Jeffrey says... Um, they could just look at the billing records. So immediately, looking at the billing records for 10 seconds, Olivia finds four deliveries to Jennifer's workplace in the week before her rape. So then they immediately go over to Jennifer's work to ask her about it. And she's like, yes, I remember the messenger company. And when they ask, do you recall anyone specific? She says, I'd rather not say. And so she's stonewalling them in a weird twist of events. And she tells them, that in five years, a lot can change and she thinks it's wrong to pursue this. Let's just drop it. And she thinks the statute of limitations might be good. Like you have your certain amount of time to try, but if you fail, you just get to move on to other things. And Benson's like, okay, but the five years is not over yet and I want to figure this out. And Stabler's like, this guy is a danger to others. And she's like, but what if he's not? And then Benson has a light bulb moment where she's like, you know who this guy is. And she explains, uh, Jennifer explains that she met him by accident. She recognized him. He didn't recognize her. She talked to him, which is crazy because if he was wearing a stocking over his face, how did you recognize him? But he didn't recognize you when he stalked you for four months. Anyway, she talked to him. 
about uh, his life, which she says was a hard life, and that when she was satisfied he had changed, she revealed her identity to him. And he wanted to turn himself in, and she talked him out of it. And Benson is, like, getting very ragey. She's like, why would you do that? And he's like, she goes, he's a changed man. We prayed together. And then Ben uh, Stabler goes, you prayed with your rapist? And uh, he tries to tell her, like, these guys do not change. He's still a danger. And she says, I disagree with you. Now in interrogation with Jennifer, Olivia asks like, oh, what religion are you? And we find out she's a Quaker and a member of the Society of Friends. Oh, they have a history of pacifism. They believe that if you sit silently, God can speak to you and, and this and that. And she believes her attacker reformed and she says that it says, love your enemy in the Bible. And Olivia's like, well, I know a little bit about everything. So I do know that the Quakers created the penal system. And she says, yes, but it's been perverted and the prisons are filled with violence. And then Olivia goes, well, if you're serious about prison reform, join Prison Watch. Like she's getting pissed about all the different ways that angles that this woman's taking. And Olivia is arguing with her that it's great you came to peace with this, but like, what about the other victims? And she says, I'm not turning him in to satisfy some abstract concept of justice. And Olivia's like, it's not abstract, honey. It's very concrete. This guy stalked, raped, and maced these women and they deserve their justice, you know? So then they bring in the other two victims to talk to Jennifer. And Vicky is like, which I wonder if they would do in real life only because if they talk to each other. It's like, remember the Nicole... Um, Sullivan episode where she gets gets raped on the subway and they like they have all the women together in the same room and that kind of negates it all because that, that gives them kind of a chance to like compare stories and get their stories straight together. I don't know. I, I just wonder if this would happen in real life. Anyway, um, Vicky's like, give me the name. And she thinks Jennifer is like, she's like, you just want them all for yourself because you're holding the power of life and death over him. You can dime him out whenever you want. And that that's like why you're doing this. And, you know, Jennifer's like, that's not why. And she's like, trust me, finding the name won't change anything. And that part like annoys me because it's like, you don't know what will it, it will change for someone else. Like it didn't change it for you, but that doesn't mean it won't change it for someone else. So um, Vicky goes into full attack mode and is like, uh, I know your job and my company provides insurance for them and I will take all of the health insurance away from your company if you do not tell me this man's name. Like, I will tell your job that you're harboring a fugitive and that you're, they're employing a hater of women or whatever. And Vicky's just going all in. She is a savage. And then Lois just has a full meltdown screaming at Jennifer being like, do you know what it's like to never leave the house? I'm like, she's so paranoid and this man's clearly like ruined her sense of safety. And she's like, I want him to pay. Tell me his name, you stupid bitch. One of the best lines. And you know, obviously we love that line. Um, so then Jennifer says to Lois, I hope you find peace. And she goes, shut up, you freak. Like, and I, I mean, I feel for Lois so badly. Like I would kill this woman. Like she's so good at this part because she's so even keeled and Zen, but that kind of temperament when I'm mad makes me crazy. Oh so. yeah, but it's also the vibe. It's like anti-choice people and stuff where it's like, well, this is what works for me. So it must work for all of you. And yeah, like, yeah, unable yeah. to see outside of yourself in any way. Um, and yeah, I hate her. Yeah, it's like, I'm sorry. Like y you should be able to like 
maybe tell this guy, hey, we're gonna like they're investigating. There's other victims are gonna have to turn you in. Like I'll pray for you in jail. I'll visit you in jail. Like you can do your own bullshit that you want to do to like maintain your your forgiveness of this man. But that's your you can't make these decisions for other people. So in Cragen's office, uh, we have 15 hours. So they're gonna ask a judge for a material witness order for Jennifer and compel her legally to talk. And Benson has this look on her face, like, oh, that is not morally sound. And uh, Stabler's like, yeah, we've never forced a rape victim to testify. And, you know, Cragen does his usual, you want this guy to walk? Like, Cragen gets really chaotic sometimes when he's trying to get a case closed. So in court, uh, they ask Jennifer to approach the bench and she refuses to tell the judge, even under threat of civil jail, who the identity of this man is. And she gets contempt of court and gets put into a woman's house of detention. And Olivia just goes up to her like last ditch and goes, you can speak at his trial. You don't have to do this. And she's like you know what, like, how do you know what your values are until you put them to the test? I think we're both doing what we think is right, but we just disagree about what that is. And then Cragen asks Olivia, like, are you okay? And she goes, well, we just sent a rape victim to lock up, so nah, I'm not I'm not great. And now in the top of Act 4, Commissioner Morris, the nasally white man from the beginning at the Comstat meeting, makes a reappearance. He waltzes into Daddy Cragen's office and he's like, we gotta talk. And he's like, I, he's just not psyched about the rape victim being sent to lock up. And he's like, I have to file a letter of complaint just for the record. And he's like, okay, well, who's putting you up to this? Rip, victims, rights groups, the press. And he's like, and the mayor and the police commissioner. And I'm like, I thought you were the police commissioner, but whatever. I find it hard to believe that the press would even cover this. Like the New York Post would be like, dumb slut, won't give up rapists, like for the headline. Like, I just don't even know if this would get covered in a way where they would feel the pressure at 1PP. Like no one rich is involved. Maybe Victoria's rich. Anyway, um, basically the guy's being political and Cragen's like, I don't have time for this. And he's just like, you just want to cover your ass in case we don't bust this guy, which may happen and we're running out of time. So Cragen's like, you only brought up the fact that these were rapes were linked for your political reasons. And you brought it up at Comstat to like kind of humiliate me and like make it political. And he's like, no, it was in the circular. And Cragen's like, yeah, but you could have actually told me I lost three days instead of just waiting for me to like thumb through my circular or whatever it is. And he's like, you're dangerously close to insubordination, Captain. And then he goes, um, well, then write me up or get the fuck out of here because I got work to do until you take this job away from me. And I only have till midnight. So yeah, tick, tick, tick. We do not have much time left. Um, Benson and Stabler are talking to a guy at the Quaker Meeting House. And this man is like a part-time and voluntary, not like priest, but like maybe some kind of spiritual leader at the Quaker House who listens to, you know, what other people when people need counseling, but he's also a psychologist. And he tries, he tried to convince uh, Jennifer to send this guy to jail. He's like, yeah, Quakers are all over the justice system. They're judges, they're lawyers, they're on juries. Like, it's not a part of our religion that she can't send this guy to jail. And then he, they go, okay, well, can you give us a list of your members? And he's like, that I won't do. Like, we have a history of civil disobedience, slavery, Vietnam, like all things that the Quakers have protested. And like, we're not gonna like just give you our list of people so that you can later, I don't know, prosecute. So Olivia says, we'll get a warrant. And he goes, okay, go ahead and get your warrant. But when you come back, I will not be alone. 
So they go and get it. They come back and Olivia's like about to knock on the door and she's like, I feel very uncomfortable about this. And so they go into the meeting house and all these members are sitting there and they're just sitting in silence. And then the man that we just spoke to peacefully like asks them to leave or to sit and pray with them. And they're like, we have to follow the law. And so they go into the back office. There's more members sitting in silence. And then Olivia has to like gently wrestle a Rolodex from an old Quaker lady. And I mean, she doesn't really fight because she is a Quaker, but it's like a moment where she kind of pulls the Rolodex from her. So now they're back at the precinct. They've narrowed down the list of bike messengers who were working at that time to 36 people and they're cross-referencing it with the Rolodex and they've got six hours. So they all like take different parts of the alphabet and they start getting down to comparing. Munch pretty quickly finds this guy whose name is Harvey Dennis. He was arrested in 1995 for burglary. So clearly he was arrested trying to commit another rape, and he served 15 months in prison. And while he was in prison, he was hospitalized for being raped in prison. So they do find his address and they head over there. So when they're walking up to this like motel, Olivia's like, I walk past this place every day on my way to the gym. This guy was under our noses. So it's like a seedy kind of hotel, kind that has like, you know, the chain link grate in front between the concierge and the customer. And they say, uh, we're looking for Harvey Dennis. And the guy at the front desk goes, I'm right here. And they tell him you're under arrest. Stand up, put your hands behind your back. But we can't, we can't see his hands right away. And so they pull out their guns and they're like, hands up, hands up. And he's like, wait, don't shoot. Puts his hands up and he goes, I'm going to buzz you in. So he buzzes them in to back behind the counter. And that's when we discover he's in a wheelchair twist. Done, done. So they wheel him out to the car and he tells them, you know, whatever, just throw me in the car. Like, I can't feel anything from the rib cage down. It doesn't hurt. And so they ask him what happened. And he's like, oh, a bike. I was on my bike and a truck side mirror smashed my spine. So he's paraplegic. And uh, Stabler reads him his rights as he gingerly like places him in the car. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. I wonder if his injury is the injury that shut down Green Machine Bike Messengers. Oh, with the insurance. Whoa, look at you. Because that's like, you know, that's he doesn't look like he got a great lawsuit or anything out of it, you know? So like, or insurance coverage. No, and I understand where, you know, Jenny Bacon's coming from of like, well, he's he's not going to do this again. But also, fuck that guy. He did it. Yeah, I think that her thing is like, yeah, he's already been brutalized in prison. He's unable to hurt anyone again. And he's prison in a wheelchair sounds like a lot more challenging, you know. But my thing is, this is, I don't know. There's no way to excuse his behavior at all. But it's like on top of like the physical attack he did, he stalked these women for months. Like he thought about this. Like this isn't a person that just was like, oh, I got drunk and I thought this person wanted it or whatever. Not that that person is excusable at all. But this is a person who like very much premeditated these attacks for months at a time. Like I find it hard to believe you can kind of reform from that, to be honest. And the internet was like chill back then. But if he was, um, who knows what he could have done with the internet? If that's like oh, in his yeah. uh, being of stalking and doing He would have only shit. like escalated this man. Yeah, three in a week. And those are all people that he'd been stalking for months. It's like he orchestrated it all to happen in a week. Yeah, put him to jail. Ugh. All right, yeah. Annalise is upset by this. We have to move on to the commercials. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll be back with some crimes. So 
this is based on two crimes, but the more I think about it, who knows if the second one even makes sense. But we will start and we'll see what happens. So we have the Kathleen Ham rape case. Um, and so Kathleen moved to New York, New York City, on June 26, 1973. And she was dreaming of a big career in publishing. And she felt like her whole life was ahead of her. And then a man entered her apartment. And she gives an account of the attack to um, an interview for NBC News. And it's with Ann Curry, who did you, she just did the interview with Heard, right? No, that was Savannah. Savannah Guthrie. But you know no, that No, Ann Curry is. Ann Curry had did like a famous Angelina Jolie interview. Like she's a very nice woman. I worked with her at the Olympics for a little Ooh, bit. Wait, but did you read that Savannah Guthrie's husband did like PR for Johnny Depp? No. Like he was, he was working with Johnny during all of this. So I don't understand. How did she not like recuse herself then? I don't know. And how come she would agree to do an interview with someone that was working with... I mean, I have no fucking idea. Unless she didn't know, but like Savannah should have been like... But how do I know? (laughs) I know you're a Today Show correspondent, but you're still technically a journalist. And I feel like ethics and journalism, not to be Gamergate, like you should probably say, my husband works with the opposing person on this lawsuit. I should not interview you. Also, I was... um, There was a big SVU Hoda could have done it. Yeah, there was an SVU marathon yesterday at the hotel, and I I rewatched Intimidation Game. She's good. Mausam is such a good actress. Oh yeah, she's great. Yeah. Um. Anyways, back to this. You just brought up Gamergate, so obviously. So yeah. Sorry. I love to talk about Gamergate like every day if I can. Go on. Okay, so back to Kathleen. So what she is telling this interview with Ann Curry is she remembers seeing a light flickering on the fire escape outside of her window. And then she saw a hand attached to the light and then she saw sneakers. And then in a flash, she was inside the apartment. Um, There was a huge struggle and he had a knife and then he threw a sheet over her head and she screamed. But then obviously he put the knife to her throat and was like, I'll fucking kill you. Stop it. Yeah. And then she was raped. So he raped her and a neighbor heard her screaming and did not kitty Genevieve in this up and did call 911. <laughs> so that is great. Wait, will you say it again? Because I think you just said Genovesian, which is our old agency. I know, name. but I thought it was like, <laughs> but how do I make it as a thing, like um, a verb? Like, yeah, Kitty, Kitty Genovese. Yeah, yeah how right. I said it. <laughs> Go fuck Kitty, yourself. <laughs> well, you said Genovesian. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. I did it. Um, Yeah. So when the cops arrived, the attacker was still inside and they were able to corner him. But after a chase around the neighborhood, they, um, they did arrest his ass. So they cornered him. He escaped. There was a chase. They did arrest him. The two officers that arrested him are Rose Snipes and Abe Mangola. And they said it felt like a Christmas present to have him there. And they knew that they had him and they were just like kind of excited. I don't know if that's like the... I don't know if they should call, like, getting a rapist a Christmas present, but the fact that it was, like, a done deal, you know? Like, they saw him in there, and they got him. Yeah. Meanwhile, she was sent to the hospital and had a terrible, terrible experience. Not surprising. She said nobody gave her any sympathy, not even a glass of water. Um, And because she reacts very controlled in a crisis and wasn't crying, the hospital did not believe that she was raped, even though all of her injuries were consistent with rape. And she heard the examiners go, oh, she was too calm. She was wasn't raped. So yeah, they legit were like, there's no sperm, so you're lying. 
Um, there was no rape kit at this time and there was no rape training. And so it was a nightmare. And then the case was also fucked on top of this like terrible experience. The cops who thought that the case was going to be a slam dunk since they both could ID the suspect um, did not happen. The man went by the name Clarence Williams. And the huge problem, I guess, um, even though he was inside, Kathleen Ham never saw his face. I just, I don't get this at all. But this was the 70s. In the 70s, you're going to hear something a police captain said and it's the most fucked up shit. Oh my God. um, Reporter Julia Preston, who covered the case for the New York Times, said there was a presumption and still kind of there is, but um, that a woman wouldn't be raped if she wasn't in some fashion asking for it. So the trial started in 1974 and it was hard because they couldn't win the case on just the victim's word. Um, the underwear did not have sperm and the prosecution focused... So were, were his people trying to just say that he just broke in and it was like a robbery? Like because Truly he's in my the ne- apartment. Yeah, oh, yeah, sorry. So the prosecution focused on the cop's ID, which should be enough, I feel. But the defense went after Kathleen. So it's the classic oh like God. Buchanan vibes of like, are you? A-? They asked her on the stand if she was a virgin. Um, like it was. It's like, um, and then they went at her for two days, and they tried to portray her as a prostitute, and that that she's like a working girl. Um, that is like a slut and not a virgin and makes money having sex. And like, they just like spun it as like a character assassination vibe. Um, and they asked, were her legs broken? Because she didn't run away. So, and then, uh, they kept like yelling, like when she tried to talk, they just kept yelling like, yes or no. These are yes and no questions. Ugh. Well, he does that all the time, Buchanan, or uh, yeah. some of those lawyers do that. No, location. Buchanan, for sure, this is a Buchanan moment. A simple yes or no will suffer, you know, yeah. So yeah, like to ask if you're a virgin and then ask if your legs are broken, it's like the most fucked up shit. And this is obviously before like all the language and all the stuff that we have, but also this isn't even that long ago. This is the 70s. And yeah. um, it was an eight-day trial, two days of deliberations, and it ended in a hung jury. So that was that. She said to NBC News that she was shattered and she became very depressed. And while the fuckhead Williams was out on bail awaiting trial, he was accused of sexually assaulting and shooting another woman. (gasps) Oh my God. In a plea bargain, he pled uh, guilty in the case and also to Kathleen's rape. Then um, that other case got overturned. So both cases had to be retried. Oh my God. Sorry, I'm about to kill someone. I know. What's going on? I know. This is like very fucked up. Um, And she bounced to California. She's like, I don't want to take the stand again. I'm not dealing with this. Fuck New York. Fuck everything. And she bounced. She's like, I'm not doing a trial again. I can see why you would not trust New York State to keep you safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So she ran away. And then this fucker escaped, like ran away and vanished. So no one could find him. So for decades, Kathleen... Um, had all of this worry and guilt and she thought that like it was her fault that she unleashed a monster and that he was out there and hurting other women and that she could have tried to meet him in court again. So for decades, she was just like, fuck, like I could have put this guy away and I didn't and now who knows what he's doing. So not only is she living in fear, like living through this trauma and now all of this guilt of yeah. like what could she have done? And I bet all those lawyers are sleeping very well at night, not even thinking about this again. Right. So she went to law school and became a lawyer. And that, so that's like good news. And then it said like she had a lot of trouble dating and couldn't fucking sleep, but 
Yeah, so she became a full insomniac. Um, and she would sit at the window with a butcher knife or lay by the door. And that's how she was, like, able to kind of sleep. Like, oh, she just, yeah, her life was ruined. And then 32 years later, she got a call from her former neighbor and the New York DA's office um, got in contact with her. So the DA's office got in contact with the former neighbor because they were looking for Kathleen because this fuck-ass Clarence Williams... <laughs> changed his name to Fletcher Worrell and was trying to buy a gun in Atlanta and his name popped up on a background check and the warrant fell on him and he was brought back to New York. Dumbass. Yeah. but Just this, had to have a gun, didn't you? Yes, but this is why we need background checks for fucking yeah. guns. Yeah. So this rapist couldn't get a gun. Um, like, have laws gone backwards? Is that what's happened? Like, is that like... Yeah. Okay, so she was pissed to get the call. And was shocked. She gasped. Um, and she just wasn't ready to hear about this ever again. Um, so they called her after Nancy gave her a heads up. So Nancy's the neighbor. So they like asked Nancy, like, can you just please talk to this woman? And so Nancy and Kathleen chatted. They asked if she was willing to testify. And this time she said yes. Um, they had her testimony, but even bigger, they now had DNA technology and science advanced. So they tested the soiled underwear from decades before and it had matched. So whatever like the hospital and all those people said that there wasn't DNA in the underwear were fucking idiots. Like, I don't know. Like maybe there was like touch DNA on it, but he like he may have used a condom or something. So there wasn't semen, but like there was touch DNA on the underwear, which proves like a sexual assault. Did happened. people use condoms yeah. in the 70s? Isn't that the thing? Oh, geez, I don't know. But then why wasn't there any material, genetic material? Girl, I don't know. If a scientist wants to hit us up, that would be great. Yeah. So it was a match. It was an exact match to Fletcher Worrell, a.k.a. Clarence. And then they found it matched two rapes in 1993 in New Jersey. So it's like her biggest fear came true. You know, like he was perpetrating <sighs> more crimes. Then his DNA popped up in nine cases from Silver Spring, Maryland, where he was known as the Silver Spring Rapist, which was part of a 21 rape pattern. Oh, my God. So this motherfucker had, like, a nickname. Like, that's how, um, like, not pro like prevalent his crime. Like, he just committed so many crimes that yeah. he had a fucking nickname. And no one could have taken... I just... Oh, my God. So all the DNA matched to at least 23 other rapes in Maryland and Jersey over the past 30 years. I think that judge, the defense, the fucking hospital workers all should be jailed. No mistakes made. Fuck those motherfuckers. The cops found this guy in her fucking house. I don't understand. I don't I'm either. That's like what shocks me because it is like if the cops saw him, chased him out. Like, I don't understand. Well, I think that's how badly that's how badly, like, they need to make women look like there's, like, no such thing as rape. Like, all women kind of want it in a way, you know? That's, yeah. I think that's, like, what is happening. Yes. Just, like, garbage misogyny. Um, and so then, before the trial, Kathleen finally decided to come forward and go public with her story and reveal her identity. I think she was like a Jane Doe until then. She said she had nothing to be ashamed of. Like, if she was burglarized, you would, like, you would use her name. So why the stigma? Um, and this time, the jury was made up of seven women and five men, and it only took two hours to find him guilty of first-degree rape and robbery. Um, and the robbery was he took $4 from her apartment, but... Glad Good. they were able to add Get it an on extra the record. Charge. Add the years, baby. <laughs> 
And this brings up, obviously, what the episode talked about, issues with statute of limitations. So her case was indicted when it happened and they were able to use the underwear. But if it was just an old case, it would have been too old. So if this was just underwear laying around or whatever, like it it passed the statute of limitations and they could have never tried it. But since he was indicted and there was a trial, they were able to use the evidence from that trial. Got it. Because it was already like brought to court. Um, So this case backed by the lobbying muscle of the Manhattan DA's office and the National Organization for Women helped persuade New York State to drop its five-year statute of limitations for first-degree rape. So back in the day, unless charges of rape were brought within five years, there could be no prosecution. And after 2006, there will be no limit in New York State for apprehending, arresting, or prosecuting rape in the first degree. Obviously, this is okay, an old article. Okay, so I guess what I was talking about was, was the second happened- and third degree. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, no, I was like panicking as you were reading. I was like, what the fuck is happening? So I'm glad <laughs> everything is correct. I didn't even realize that though. Like when I looked it up, like t- so 2006 is is when they stopped first degree. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And then if you want to learn more about statute of limitations, there's a state-by-state guide on rain.org. Um, and you're all smart and capable listeners. So you can look all that information up. Um, and it's a nightmare. And I don't understand why you would have time limits on this crime. And then Kathleen Ham um, actually, died um, at 73 years old on January 20th of this year in her home in Santa Monica. (sighs) Well, I hope she died, like, at least feeling like she got justice eventually. Yeah. Fuck. That's fucking horrific. But I mean... I mean, the thing is, too, is, like, they had this guy on, like, 23 rapes across New Jersey and Maryland, and those are women that went and reported. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I bet you it's so many more. Didn't even think about that. Yeah. And that they couldn't find this guy and all these people. Yeah. And I just, like, it was like, I'm sure it was system. like the 70s. Women were scared. They were like, I'm not even going to the cops. Like, I'll just move. You know what I mean? Like, I bet there's so many more victims. Like, true, true psychopath. Oh my God. Ugh. I know. So the next case is um, about Paul Callow, and he's in quotes, the balcony rapist. Um, So Paul is a serial rapist, and um, this happened in Toronto in the mid-80s. He would break into women's homes by climbing onto second or third story balconies. Um, He was convicted of raping five women at knife point and spent 20 years in jail. So that's, I guess, good news. But as of 2017, this is the article, said that Canada doesn't have a public sex offender registry. So there are no ways to provide like where sex offenders live. And the first article I found was a community just like pissed he was going to be living with them. I kept trying to find more articles from the 80s and it was all people being like, get him the fuck out of my community. Like (laughs) so many Google pages of just people being like, how dare he live? And so this just brings up a lot of interesting like legal shit. Again, I don't know how this attaches to the case, but whatever. The wiki said so. So he's a little too casual, but I guess he's right. But he's quoted saying, there's nothing I can do at this point. All I can do is see to it that I don't do anything like that again. And it's like, I guess that makes sense, but I don't know. Like, why would people feel safe with you? But he that was his response to communities not wanting to live um, around him. But the residents are like, we just wanted a heads up. Like, why can't we ha- get a heads up? And he, this guy gives off, like, big manipulator Ed Kemper vibes. Like, that's what I get from him. Like, lying to parole, giving them what they want to hear to, like, think that you've rehabilitated, but you really haven't. So those are the vibes that I get from him. Or he's just really super delusional. I'm not sure. But the parole board consistently denied Mr. Callow early release and said that he had made absolutely no progress towards rehabilitation. 
Um, He was released with 17 conditions. So there was like curfew. He can't have drugs, alcohol, weapons, no rope, tape, wire, gloves, or pliers. So specific. Like you can never have gloves again. But yeah, so this is just like interesting. Um, Oh, I guess maybe this connects to the episode of like punishment and what's fair and what's not, where it's like he did serve 20 years in jail. Yeah. So he did his time, but I also understand people not wanting to be around the serial rapist. So it's like, what do you do? Like, do you... It's just tough. It, yeah. It's just tough. Um, And we've talked about this all the time, and this happened in some cases we covered in the UK, but this guy actually raped someone in 1982 and served jail time and did not give a shit. Like, he was like, I'm just going to do my time and get out and go back at it. Like, he did not care, and they released him. And he got married, and what he started doing was just breaking into apartments and robbing. And then he started noticing a pattern if there wasn't men's clothing, and then he knew the women lived alone. So he was this robber who put the connection together and then was like, oh, I'm going to remember where all these women live alone. And I feel like I don't want to give validity to his excuses of why he did the crimes, but he's like, boo-hoo, I'm an alcoholic, and my wife was the breadwinner, and I'm sad. So that's he's like an incel. Incels throughout time. Uh, My wife makes more money, and I get to live off her money and I'm going to rape people instead. So when he was arrested and went away for 20 years, he did interviews and said like he wanted to make strides towards rehabilitation. And he brags about all these like prison programs he completed, like anger management. Um, He then wanted to like sue the department for slander that he's not that bad of a guy. He's just a sicko. So he rapes someone, serves his time, gets out, starts robbing, starts serial raping, goes to jail, and then wants to sue the department for slander because he's not that bad. I bet you if you talk to this guy, he would be like a like a malignant narcissist psychopath like or sociopath. I mean, I know there's differences in the designations, but like... The, the delusion of grandeur, you know? Like, I'm not that bad. They need to take back what they said about me. You know, it's like, it's not something that makes any sense. Yeah. And then other big and unique issues with this case is the fifth victim felt like the police used her as bait, that they should have communicated a warning so people could have protected themselves, but they wanted to catch him. So victim five is known as Jane Doe. And in 1986, she said that the police knew there was a serial rapist in the neighborhood. They knew he was operating in a very small six block radius, that he was attacking women who lived alone in second or third floor balcony apartments and who had long brown hair. They knew the attacks were cyclical. They knew the day he would strike, she claims to the Buffalo News. And instead of warning women like her who lived in the area so they can make adequate decisions about protecting themselves, they used this woman to catch him in the act of raping, she argues. So she sued the department. So like they warned the neighborhood about robberies, but did not mention the rapes to the media at all. Oh. The police say revealing that would have changed his tactics and targets, so it would have fucked with the investigation, but it's also like someone else could have not been raped, but okay. And this is what I told you earlier that's going to make you so mad. So at the time of the attack, a senior police officer's rejected calls from the Toronto Rape Crisis Center for Sex Crimes Unit because they considered rape not significantly different from other crimes, according to minutes of a 1975 police meeting. So, like, the Rape Crisis Center was calling them and, like, wanted help. And they were just like, fuck off. Like, we know what we're doing. It's not like it's a special crime. And I think the reason I included this is because 
it kind of goes back to the Kathleen Ham case of like, why was it mismanaged so poorly? And it's because people like this, like the men in charge did not think rape was a unique crime at all. Yeah. Um, So in Toronto, a sexual assault squad finally was established in 1987. And this uh, Jane Doe number five did win her case. And the judge awarded her more than 150,000 US dollars in 1998. And yeah, just thinking if the police were better. But (laughs) so those are the two cases that inspired the episode. But I also think the episode is like very heavily. Um, and just like about the limitations, about the statue. You know? I don't know that there's maybe ever been a woman who's like hiding her rapist's identity because she feels he's rehabilitated or maybe that's happened in real life, I wonder. No, and I guess this case just deals with rehabilitation and what is it and what is not because this guy yeah. got out, but like the parole board legit's like this man is unchanged. So who cares if he served 20 years? Like, And I don't know about... I don't really know about Canadian prisons, but it doesn't really feel like in U.S. prisons there's much of an opportunity to, like, reform and change, right? Like, aren't you just kind of living well, yeah, amongst it's a violence? And, yeah, Here it's, it's like a not... Business. Like, well, you got to do some programs. Says it's, it's about punishment. It's not about, you know, rehabilitation. It's about free labor. It's modern-day yeah. slavery. It's not about... It, yeah. It's like, it's... That's, like, the wildest thing when traveling abroad, being like, oh, wow, our prisons are businesses. Like, that's the most twisted. There's so much twisted things in our culture, but, like, that prisons are for profit is probably one of the most sick, I would say. Yeah. But, yeah, um, also, hopefully by now, Canada has, like, a sexual predator registry. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, especially because we've specifically read so much about Canadian, like, killers and rapists. Like, there's a lot of them up there. Um, Annalise did just check and um, Canada does have a registry. So thank you so much, Canada, for doing the bare minimum. Get on it, Canada. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> but it is like, a, it is wild because it's like, if you did serve 20 years for a crime, like, what are the rules? I don't want to live next to a serial rapist, whether he spent 20 years in jail or not. Like, I don't know. I know. And it's like, I my tendency is to like feel bad, which is wrong. Like when we they did that episode of like, Welcome to the Pedo Motel, where like Carisi's undercover with like all these people that are pedophiles. Yeah. And like some of them have been... Some of them just were arrested for sex abuse images. Some of them, you know, actually had w- worse crimes. And you're like... Oh, that does suck that you served your time and no one will allow you to coexist with them anywhere. Like, but it also is like, I don't want that, you know? There's like an area in Florida where a bunch of pedophiles live, like in a cornfield somewhere. Really? Florida doesn't have corn. I think there's a documentary about it because the whole thing is it's like, it is hard to find somewhere to live because you can't be near a school. You can't be near right. all of these different places. So it's you very limiting. You get all limiting. these background checks and like apartments won't take you. And So you there's know. like a community of sexual offenders and pedophiles in Florida that all live together in the, like some trailer park. Or I'm making yeah. this up in like a fever dream that I had, but I do feel it is real. I think you're looking it up. I am. Um, <laughs> originally, I just got Jeffrey Epstein's island. But um, <laughs> inside Miracle Village, Florida's isolated community of sex, Sexual offender, sex offenders. Yeah. 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 There's a big Vice article about it from uh, 2015. They all live there. And then I wonder, like, do they all have, like, 
spouses and are they raising families around the other pedophiles? Or yeah, like is a it person just like they, single The person weirdos? they interview here is a woman. And I'm not saying women can't be sex offenders, but it's just, it's like, yeah, this woman's moving into this community with these other sex offenders. And I, it's interesting. She's like, it's varied. Like sometimes it's guys that are like 18 and had a girlfriend who was 16, you know, like that sucks. That you should be turned out from society because you were dating someone two years younger than you. <sighs> yeah. It sucks. I find myself immediately going to a place of um, pity and feeling bad. And then I'm like, wait, no, they did commit horrible crimes. Like a lot of them did. But then it's like, it's why are you taking the risk? I just feel like so often us as women, like, don't walk at night, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And so for men, it's like, yeah, just don't fuck people under 18. Can you not handle yeah, that? Yeah. Can you you just can't do handle that? this one little thing that you're supposed to do to not go to jail. So to me, it's like, go fuck yourself. I don't care about you. That's not true. I care. I don't know. I just do a funny joke about it. Go see her live. All right. And now we have a guest to cleanse the palate as always. Stay right where you are. Guys, today's guest, you could call a queen of the procedural drama. You've seen her in tons of appearances on everything from not just a Law & Order original recipe, not just Criminal Intent, but also more recently, Chicago Med, New Amsterdam, Blue Bloods. And today, you know her as the rape victim who will never tell, Jennifer Neal. Guys, our interview is with the lovely Jenny Bacon. Are you based in New York area? Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. I, can tell the, I can tell the daylight's a little bit different over there. Yeah, it's a little different. <laughs> and it's springtime. Yeah, I was just in, I just flew back from New York yesterday, but also you're a theater gal, so we kind of assumed you were in New York doing all the hits. Um, obviously, you probably missed so much during pandemic lockdown and how thrilled you probably are to be back. Yeah, yeah. You know, most of it's being mom now, though. Oh, yeah. Now it's mostly being mom. How old are your kids? They're 17 and 15. Oh my gosh, teens. <laughs> yeah, they're huge. Are they into the arts? They are. Are they? Are you going to like their school plays and stuff? Are they in the... Yeah. That's really <laughs> cute. And do you remember any of your um, favorite kind of plays that you were in at school? Or I, I did see your... For, uh, went to Northwestern. I'm a Sco- I, I grew up in Skokie. So. Oh, yeah. And we have a theory. We don't know what the theory is, but we've talked to like a dozen people from SVU that have gone to Northwestern. So many people. We don't have the theory yet, but in are fact, there any... another another person in the episode that we're going to be talking about, uh, we were at Northwestern at the same time. Oh, Wait, who? which person? Yeah, Shauna Kofed, who played the, the very shy and afraid... Victim. victim. Yeah, I yeah. think she calls the, you a bitch. The, yeah, she, yeah, she, yeah. That was yes. really fun. Did she call me a crazy bitch or a yes. stupid she, bitch? Tell me his name, you crazy bitch, you or crazy something like that. Bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. So yeah, we knew each other. So it was oh, even so more cool. fun. Yeah, that's so fun. fun. Yeah, yeah. Really fun. I think that the secret mystery is just that Northwestern has a great acting school, right? Yeah, is that it? I think I guess. so. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think that is. The, um, but you, but that's so cool that you get to run into old alums and pals from that when you're doing TV work and stuff. And um, I looked her up too, and she's she works and seems like she's doing great. Yeah, she's <laughs> awesome. She's totally awesome. But yeah, are there any like roles you remember as like a youth where you were like, oh yeah, this is I'm gonna yeah that you look fondly on that you remember? Well, the first big break I got 
as a sophomore was playing viola in Twelfth Night. Oh, that was super duper fun because it was a pants part, you know. Oh yeah, to wear the pants. So that was awesome. Yeah. That's cool. And it is an honor to have you, not only SVU, but you have the trifecta, you know, your uh, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, and an SVU alum. And I actually did, did two SVUs. Yes, oh, we know. yes. Oh, we know. We know. Yeah. We're going to ask you about both. But oh, nice. You, so was, what? like, I think Law and Order Original Recipe is probably one of your first big breaks that you got it, or Absolutely. on TV. And then did it just work where they knew you at the casting office and so they pushed you over for SVU? Or like, how did all these, how did your how did your Dick Wolf journey begin? Please tell us your origin story. So apparently the, the great thing about Original Recipe uh, <laughs> is that they had been working together for so long. It was complete meritocracy. And everybody knew that they were working at the top of their game and people could work their way up inside in the production half of things. So the guy who directed my episode, it was his first time directing. Wow. The show. And he had worked his way up. He had just, you know, like from, you know, third AD to second AD to first AD. And this was his thing. And he had actually seen me do a play down in the East Village, like, you know, like, you know, rock and roll theater. And he's like, that's my, you know, like, because I always have to be a villain. You know, I always have to be like sort of psycho. Yeah. He's like, (laughs) she's my villain. You know, like I got her, you know. And uh, and so that was awesome. And Constantine Macris, who directed the episode that we're talking about, he was the cinematographer on that first episode. So okay. he knew that I was going to be his villain <laughs> because we had done Got the other it. show together. Yeah. So it's just, it's the whole like family aspect of these shows is amazing. And I got to say that it's SVU that has the real because Mariska is the goddess. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's like, and it was really fun to go back and see like way back when, you know, because when she first started, she's like coming in to work and she's wearing her like leather pants and her fabulous like super furry coat. She's like so gorgeous and sexy. And then she has to Benson up, you know, and just like go gray, all gray, like buttoned up and stuff. And it's kind of fun to see how over the years, uh, you know, Olivia has been having Mariska bleed into her, you know, like just <laughs> yeah. like getting more like fluid and, you know, sexy. And it's uh, it's just been really fun to see. But yeah. she is the centerpiece. She like holds the whole thing together. From the minute you walk in, you know she is in charge and she knows everybody's great at what they do. And she wants them to be great at what they do. And she makes that happen. And she's so supportive and she's specifically supportive too. Like she knows when somebody's doing a really good job at what they do. She knows what everybody is doing. And she'll offer like for a guest person, she will offer when the cameras go off, she'll offer something really generous. She'll say something super nice that just makes you go, because you're always sort of like, oh, am I doing it right? Sure. she just like, well, yeah. and also because you were on the first season. So, right. like, I don't even know if it was, you know, now Did everyone she have tells that us now? it's a well-oiled machine and like, you know, it, it. so, but like, but for season one, I wonder, did she have that same, yeah, like, same question as Lisa, like, was she that way right then? Or are you speaking more about season 14 when you came back? Or was she from the get-go just like a boss? 
I would say that from the get-go, she was a <laughs> <Love> boss. Because <laughs> you can see it in her eyes, you know? Like when she's like, when they put her up against like a bad guy and she yeah. just looks right at him and she's like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. mm-mm. Not today. <laughs> and it's just that she has that energy in her. And part of it's like, because she's just a perfect physical specimen of a human being, you know? She just like walks into a room and she just like kind of, she just knows that her job is to be optimistic, confident, you know, and to deal with it if it goes wrong, you know, like find a way. Yeah. And she does. I was like, wow. It's like, I wish you were my mom. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool to hear that it was from season one. And I loved what you said that like, she knows other people are good at what they do. And like, that's like cool leadership to kind of trust the people around you. Exactly. Exactly. And reinforce everything good that's happening. She's fantastic. And then you got to come back for season 14 and see how after like, you know, a decade plus, how much like more in charge she was. Because I think by then she was like an executive producer and like actually really in charge. Like not just attitude, but like, you know, title. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. And she's just... she does what you would want to do. It's like, if if you were emperor of the world, how would you want to be? You'd want to be like Marishka. That's how you'd want to be. Yeah, because so many people <laughs> choose another way, right? So many people are like evil dictators and she just chooses this positivity. It's really cool to hear from so many people. And how was Maloney? Chopped um, <laughs> liver compared to Mershka. But yeah, any Maloney scoops? No, I don't really have any Maloney scoops. I just know that, you know, part of my job you know, the, was to set, he has one really great line in one scene that we have together where he goes, you prayed with yeah. your rapist. <laughs> <laughs> like, and so... I felt like the whole scene was just to make sure that we set that up so that yeah. that would just like, bam. And it's it's like a kind of a fun line from him because his character is so religious too. He's like the church boy. So it's yeah. like, uh, I know praying and I don't think you do that with your rapist, you know? That was what was <laughs> fun about the episode actually was that it really put both of the detectives in the hot seat mm. personally, you know? That was really fun because, yeah. you know, Benson doesn't want to, doesn't want to be there and n- neither does, you know, neither does Maloney. They, neither of them want to be there. Yeah. It is a cool episode because I feel like there's like, there are like moral dilemmas. Like at first, everybody hates your character, you know, they're just like, say it, give up the name, you know, but then kind of at the end, you're like, I don't know, maybe, you know, like this, Mm-mm. I don't not know. <laughs> I, I'm not saying I was totally like, yeah, don't give, I'm not saying I thought she was totally right, but I, I could see a little bit more where she was coming from, you know, like it, I think it just makes you stop and think. Yeah. What are bit. your views on your character that you played? How do you feel about her? I am so glad that you said that because actually, because when you know the end, right? And my character is the only one who knows the end. She's like, she thinks she's so good. And, you know, when you're playing the bad guy who's the good guy who's the bad guy who's the good guy, <laughs> you sort of have to believe you. It's like, no, no, she really wants to do the right thing. This is yeah. Like, so I have a funny story to tell you about that, actually. It's like a couple of days after the episode aired, I was out uh, waiting to meet a friend at Vaselka, the amazing Ukrainian yeah. restaurant in the East Village. And I'm standing there and waiting. My friend is late. And this woman is looking at me like, 
Her eyes, she is she is sending so much shade my way. She's like trying to make me leave with her eyes. And I'm like, what? And I'm a natural beta. So I'm like, I did something wrong. I did something wrong. What did I do? What did I do? I'm like getting more and more. I'm like uh, trying to say, I didn't do anything. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then all of a sudden her face, like a veil lifts. And she went, oh my God, you are on TV. She's like, I'm over here thinking, oh my God, why do I think this woman is so creepy? I don't know you. It was like the funniest thing. And I'm thinking like, oh, and on the one hand, I'm like, wow, hooray, someone recognized me. And then I'm like, how many people are my walking past? Thinking like, I hate her. I don't know why, but I hate her. Just like in the back of their minds. That's Um, so funny. It's like, did we go to high school together? Why do I hate you? Like, why do I hate you? No, she is, yeah, an easily hateable character. Did you know about Statue of Limitations or like Quakerism or anything like that before you came to film? Did you do any research or learn anything like from the episode? Absolutely. Um, Mostly though, what I was interested, I did have, my brother had a friend who had watched these episodes and they sort of played a game where she would guess. She'd be like, she's an abused woman. She's religious. She's like, she like, she like, and she was always right. And she could guess, like, I would like lay the clues in just for her. And she would know like right away what was happening. Wow. So the deal is, right, there's a trauma that's happened. And how do you, the, it's the trauma that comes first. And then how do these people like, uh, how do they grab the tools that they need? And once you've grabbed a tool, you don't let go of it. You hang on to that tool for dear life and you do not let go. And I felt like for it to stay alive, the question had to keep coming up. The question had to always be in front of her. And that was partly why she was so annoying was because she would talk really slowly. (laughs) (laughs) She's very cautiously moving towards the thing that is probably going to happen. So just that sort of, that was the, so I didn't do so much on Quakerism in general, but I thought it was a good choice that they chose Quakerism as the, as the backdrop because it puts the whole, it puts Olivia in a bigger bind, Mm. right? The idea is to make the problem as hard as possible for the protagonists of the show, right? Right. No, you just kind of changed my mind a little bit because I forgot about the trauma. It's like, yeah, she's holding on to it. Who knows if she even believes it, but she feels like she has to continue doing this for this her the healing only way. or something. Yeah. 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 It's the only way that she can wake up in the morning, you know? Right. So, and so that's, you know, it, but this is what happens when we bump up against each other, right? But I feel like your voice is a huge part of the character. Like, listen, I've seen all 500 and whatever episodes of the show. There are many of them many times. And you're a victim that like stands out to me because of the way you talk, I think. Oh, like, because of the way you. you spoke in this episode. I'm always like, oh yes, the woman who won't give up her own rapist and she knows him and she's so zen and calm. Like, you, you know... You stick out in a sea of uh, victims of the, in the show. <laughs> and how was it filming getting yelled at by your uh, the by other Shauna? two women? That was awesome. Well, see, this was also interesting, right? Because there's three victims, and so it's like a fairy tale, right? And so there's only one of us that's actually sympathetic. 
And that's Shauna's character. And I think that Judith and I both were sort of wondering, like, well, how come my, how come my guy, my, I mean, my guy has a good reason to behave the way they're behaving. <laughs> I mean, they have to behave this way. But like, if everybody was like Shauna's character, nothing would get done. I mean, with like, what, what, what about us? You know, like, we're not bad. We're not bad. She's just like so sweet and like cannot move on until you say, and the other one's just like, I sue everyone. And then you, <laughs> you have the secret. And so, yeah, she is the sweet one, kind of. And then all of a sudden she switches. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh my God, it was so good. It we love it. Good. We love a you crazy bitch line on this show for sure. Um, have you noticed any big differences between like when you do when you've done original recipe versus SBU versus criminal intent since you've done all three? Well, yes, mostly because Marishka. Yeah. Right. Mostly because Marishka. Um the criminal intent was super duper fun, but you don't feel that they are at risk. Like it's Mar- Marishka's character. She's managed to create like an arc, like a never ending arc that's always moving forward. She has a capacity to accumulate experience. She has a past capacity to grow. She has the capacity to change. She's therefore unpredictable. Like, we're never entirely sure how she's going to absorb something and then move it forward. Um, the other shows, the criminal intent was really fun because that character that I got to play was a complete psycho killer. Just like utterly. And so I remember there was one scene where the director was like, okay, in this scene, I think she should be even crazier. And I said, no, in this scene, she should be perfectly normal. She should be, it should be like just one of those other like really short, thung, thung, you know, moments where they're like, hey, the well, the garbage truck came and then he left, you know, like the end, you know, it should be like the most normal possible like presentation so that it's like this, that you never know. It's that the data set is just completely random. Yeah. You have no idea what's going to happen. And then the, the, the original recipe was just sort of more, uh, I don't know, it's more serious somehow. I think because Sam Waterston's eyebrows just, <laughs> it's just very serious. Very important right? character on the show, those eyebrows. Yeah. We talk to a lot of actors that say, like, while in New York, being in a Law & Order is a stamp of approval. You're not a New York actor till you get to do SVU and stuff. But you did those all so early. Did you still feel that? Or was it, like, a bragging thing? Like, I was on season one. Like, how <laughs> did you feel about getting that stamp? Oh, man. No, it's a massive stamp. It's massive. It's like, you know, yeah. And, you know, I did do them early, but that was more like, like, go for it, man. Go for it. You're here. You're part of the, you're part of the tribe, you know? Yeah. And could you imagine that show would go on for 23 seasons? Wow. Amazing. I mean. Kara and I are always really impressed and we ask a lot of questions about the tears, the crying, the single <laughs> tear. But you, and and actually both of your episodes, what's impressive is like you have wet eyes, they're not dropping. Is that just natural? You're in the moment? Is that a calculated decision? And how do you keep your eyes so wet? <laughs> <laughs> you're using drops. Tell us you're using drops in between takes. Yeah. That's all we want to hear. <laughs> That's funny. Um, no, it's uh, actually... Uh, it's, I remember like when I was very young, I worked with this amazing actress named Irma P. Hall, who's unfortunately uh, passed on now. But she was a woman who came to acting late in life. And she would talk about how people would say, oh, uh, you know, do you think you could cry in this scene? And she'd be like, honey, I could cry all day. <laughs> 
I could just cry and cry and cry. And really, you know, uh, you can think about any number of things that, uh, but especially with the second one, it was, it was that poor woman was just hit with so much all at once. And, uh, you know, when you love somebody, it just kicks in, right? Yeah. I just loved how progressive that relationship was too. Right. You're just like, yeah, we just are, we're partners. We love each other. We let each other do what we do. Like it was great. It was pretty exciting and yeah. unexpected. Well, both of your characters are so different from what you expect normal to be, you know, both the season one and 14 characters are very different. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, you're almost like this radical forgiveness is progressive as well, I would say in a way, you know, that like you you didn't see a lot of characters, like a lot of shows were just about fully law and order. Like, where's the justice? Like everyone wants justice. And you're like, well, my idea of justice is different. And yeah, it's interesting. That is, I never thought of a through line between those two characters is radical forgiveness, but it's true. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. And how did you feel? Did you get to work with Amaro, Danny Pino? Um, He was the other detective. Wasn't he in your scene when you were telling the story? When I was telling the story. Yes, when I was telling the story. It's hard to say because Mariska is such a nice person that I feel like she could be partners with anybody. But there was definitely a gentleness and an ease to their partnership. And it was fun how... They're allowed to have different, they're, they don't have to have the same reaction to the surprise. You notice so many good details. That's a theater. That's the theater, right? A <laughs> live theater, yeah. And then being in the Dick Wolf universe, we saw you also did Chicago Med. How was it going back to Chicago after doing theater there for so long and being able to film? And like, what are the places you love to go and stay while you're in there? In Chicago? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> This always well, becomes a Chicago tourism I podcast know. towards the end. <laughs> wow. Well, my mom is still there, as oh, wow. is my brother. So my mom actually got sick while I was shooting Chicago Med. And so I was bringing her, you know, Thai food and stuff to that delicious chicken soup that makes you feel better. Um, you know, it's always fun to go to Steppenwolf. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. That makes me happy. Um, we saw that you did an episode of Bull. Did you ever get to meet Geneva Carr? She's the blonde that's like the main... No, I did not. That was another psycho killer. I was just in a warehouse holding a gun to his head for, oh, yeah. you know, for a day. Yeah, I think it's so funny you get cast as a psycho so much. Wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> Type casting. Yeah. Well, it was exciting to talk to you because it was going to be like, does her? what is her voice? You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's similar to your character, very calm Indeed. and yeah. Do you do voiceover? Uh, no, nobody wants me because I can't sell anything. I just make everybody fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, you could absolutely do meditation apps. Hey, I feel that's like a you great could idea. do meditation apps. Like I would absolutely <laughs> listen to you to fall asleep, like just to calm down and not have anxiety at the end of the night. Not that you're putting me to sleep. You're very interesting. I just mean the tone of your voice. If you were like telling me a mundane story, I'd be right out. Like, like just, Awesome. We'll get the yeah. phone book out. Yeah. Let's do it. Yes. <laughs> Is there any um, where that our listeners, like any future projects or anything you want anyone to check out or find you on the internet or a cause you're into? Yeah, if you don't mind, uh, there's a, there's a very small theater company in New York City and the name is Houses on the Moon. And I 
love, I, I work with them sometimes, not as an actor, but behind things. What's amazing about them is that each play that they do is completely unique and unique to the, to the cause that they're from 2001, their mission statement has been to amplify the unheard voice. And they go into communities, they walk the walk, they don't just talk the talk. They have community partners that they build relationships with that are sustained year after year after year. So for like, for example, when they worked on a show about deportation of uh, gang youths back to uh, Central America, they made relationships with um, advocacy groups and pro bono lawyer groups and all of these. And these relationships are sustained. And like when they did one about gun violence, they work with like different community groups that work with kids in neighborhoods that are difficult. They have a show on right now. I don't know when this episode airs, but it's called Superhero and it's happening at the Sheen Arts Center and it's really, really, really good. And it's funny. That's the thing. Their shows are funny, but they never tell you what you're supposed to think about these issues. They basically just lay it out for you. They're just laying it out. They're very authentic. It takes them forever to make a show. They're really cool. And what is it called again? Houses on the Moon. Houses on the Moon. Okay, awesome. Thank you for sharing about that. Thank you for asking. That was really nice to be able to talk about them. Are there any other like stories or tidbits that you'd love to share? All I can think is like, you know, that when I did the, when I did the original recipe, I was so amazed at the machine that whenever we had a break, I would change into my costume as fast as possible. And then I just watch everybody doing their thing. Mm. And it was just, it, it was so amazing to watch everybody working at the same time, the, the lighting, the props, the, you know, the set, everything like, and the, the pieces, you know, that they, that it's like a big erector set and they can like take it apart and put it back together. And it's so different from uh, live theater, but at the same time, the theatricality of it is so exciting. Just the verisimilitude, if that's the word, right? Yeah, I've never heard that word in my life, but Kara. (laughs) (laughs) They're just down to the very, the the tiniest details. Like everything is perfect. So everybody just does their job so well. Yeah, yeah. We talk about that all the time. And I think as like, when you're not in the biz or whatever, you really don't know how many people and how many skills it takes to make this beaut like a great production. And SVU, it's like, we were just doing an episode where it was in a restaurant and like they had the schedules in the back and the stickers and there's always just these little details everywhere that are so good. I think people think that that they're just renting out a restaurant and using whatever's around and it's like no 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 they're like they're de- they're set decorating this whole thing like they it's like all the details and the meticulous control you know yeah yeah so we're very impressed by it all the time and it's glad to hear we're glad to hear you are too. God, I wish I could think of some amazing story, but I can't think of okay. any you amazing story. You remember a lot stories. for the fact that yes. this episode was on 21 years ago. So you really, really... And, oh, I know one thing. At the very beginning of the episode, it's not really a memory thing, but it's just like at the very beginning of the episode, Isaiah Whitlock. Did you see Isaiah Whitlock? Is like, he's like got the tiniest little very beginning of the show. And it's just like, I knew him from around. And it's just so exciting to see it, to go back in time. Cause I had actually forgotten because it's so tiny and it's so just at the very, very beginning. It's like, 
I'm so honored that he's like, that he opens my first episode of SVU now, you know, now that he's like, oh, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, he's so young. It's wild when you get to grow up with a lot of these actors and then be surprised. Yeah, that is always a surprising start. And that you don't know, like, because, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are like, you know, oh, I'm going to be a star. And it's like, "Mm mm-hmm, sure, yeah. (laughs) You know, and it's like, no, he's like, you know, he's Spike Lee's right-hand man and he's like working with Donald Glover and he's like, you know, it's just like, this is so cool. It's the little time capsules too. It's fun to take the ride back in the time capsule, the 90s hair. So I can like, wow, look at that. Well, well, they yeah, never and, had you. Oh, sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say, a lot of the people that we talked to from the earlier seasons to that, like there wasn't a lot shooting in New York. So it does seem like it was really a small community of actors overlapping and you probably saw each other at the Chelsea Piers all the time. And I kind of yeah. love uh, thinking about all of you guys running into each other all the time. <laughs> Definitely. Well, they have not had you now in a few years. I think we've all forgotten about your last role now. It's time. And I'd like to see that psycho killer of you on this because you haven't done that on this one yet. So if you're listening, SVU casting, we need a (laughs) Jenny Bacon Bacon with a knife. (laughs) We need her back. (laughs) Yeah, killing children or something really wild. (laughs) Oh, yeah, like like an unhinged mom. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's, it, that's what America needs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just love a thespian. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm yeah. actually in the hotel where my thespian high school banquet was upstairs. Really? Yeah. Kind of cool, right? Oh, wow. Memory lane. That's fun. <laughs> that is fun. Yeah, but I do love um, a theater gal. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, she was great. She definitely has like, she should, I like I told her, I'm like, you need to like be on like the meditation apps or something. Her voice is yes. like so soothing. Like she would put me right to sleep. Yeah, and I like that she had the inside scoop that Mariska was a star from season one, you know? She could tell. She could tell. The more gossip, the better. That was really cool. And I like, well, I love this. This episode had everything. Quakers, fighting. Um, (laughs) Just tell me his name, you stupid bitch. (laughs) It's Um, so good. And um, I love, uh, not I love, but I enjoy doing local, smaller types of crimes that maybe not a lot of people know about. I obviously love doing the massive research of like a Scott Peterson or an Eileen Warnos, but I really do in a different way enjoy researching um, these smaller crimes that just like, what do you call it? I don't know. All crimes are equally important. No, but but more like, yeah, not sort of lower profile crimes, even though they're, even though they're just the, the magnitude of every crime is important. Like they're just not, they don't just all get picked up by people magazine, you know? And this case like sparked new legislation. And so that's, um, you know, even <laughs> like one person, I don't know, one bad thing can make a difference. I don't know what, I don't know what to say. No, it's like we have, like we have do- talked about a lot of cases where even if a person doesn't get justice, like it has changed one thing, you know, like sadly they don't, you know, they don't get the justice they deserve, but then hopefully future victims have been um, saved by their, I hate to say sacrifice because they didn't do anything intentionally, but you know. 
Yeah, but having to take the stand and doing all that, it is a lot. And that's what the episode showed, too. Right. Right. Oh, and it's the classic thing of someone commits a sexual crime and then gets not a lot of jail time and then comes back out and commits lots and lots more crimes. Like, or all these, like, mass shooters and stuff. Like, we just don't take these crimes. So this guy, like, raped, got a small sentence, came out, and then raped so many more people. It's like, why are we not keeping rapists in jail? What the fuck? Yeah. But a great episode. But I also, yeah, I also, like, Jenny Bacon did bring shit to light because I hated the character. And then hearing her be like, you know, people heal in different ways. And this was the way that she was able to, like, get through it made me really open my eyes to a different perspective on the character. No, that's a really good point. I, I, I forgot about that. And yeah, it's, that was really interesting. Um... I always, like, from the beginning was kind of like, I see what she's talking about, but, like, you have to empathize with the other women and that they want justice. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? And I know we like to pretend we know what's happening after the episode's over. Like, what do you think happens to that guy? He, like, goes to jail? Yeah. Yeah. As he should. I don't know, right? Sometimes it's good that the show is fiction, but it's not. What does our podcast prove? What is all this? Okay, I did see the meme um, making fun of, like, two women doing murder podcasts. But in it, it was like, what's up, murder muffins? And we still don't have a name for everybody, and I wish we did. Murder muffins would have been good. I like calling them our dick wolf babies. Oh, okay. Dick wolf <laughs> babies. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Did I miss that? Well, we, t- we said it a long time ago, but then we like never really said it again. But I don't but... think anyone's really attached to it. Please let us know how you feel about dick wolf babies. <laughs> our little dick wolf pups. <laughs> um... <laughs> oh, I get it more. Oh my God. I watched a wild video on the internet of a cat and a fox getting into a fight and the cat fucking got away, but it was fucking wild. <laughs> it was wild. Oh my gosh. The cat Lisa. fought for her life and the cat won. You know what? Olivia Benson would have said to that cat, you did what you needed to do to survive. <laughs> yeah. Don't blame yourself. <laughs> mittens. Don't, mittens, don't blame yourself. You did exactly what you had to do. Um, all right. Listen, let's move in to our What Would Sister Peg Do segment. This is our weekly segment where we point you to a organization, book, article, something to help shed more light on the topic we touched on in today's episode. And I wanted to point out this New York Times article that is called Should Statutes of Limitations for Rape Be Abolished? And obviously the link is in our show notes. And uh, the article is a story about Donna Palumba, a woman who was raped in 1993 and shoddy police work and statute of limitations in the state of Connecticut all contributed to her not getting the justice she deserved. And it explains the history of the statute of limitations that exists for sexual assault cases in several states and how that's gotten in the way of helping a lot of people in the same situation as Donna. And so I just thought it shed a lot more light in case you're like, what is the statute of limitations? Because, you know, it was different. This is a season one episode. The statute of limitations in New York has changed since this article came out, um, since this episode came out and since this article came out. So 
I think it's important if you want to know more about the statute of limitations um, to get a little bit more context. This article is very helpful. And that is, as you know, as always in our show notes and on Instagram in our WWSPD highlight along with all of our other What Would Sister Peg do's that we've ever done. Um, next week's episode, we'll be doing Criminal Stories, Season 15, Episode 18. Get ready for Benson's Bouncing Curls and <laughs> uh, Hulu, Peacock, VPNs. Um, get your episodes in, do your homework or else. And we'll see you next week. Bye, guys. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at GlitterCheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Annalise Nelson. And to our mixer, John Bradley. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.